What is up, everybody? It is Saturday. It is morning, and I'm here to talk you into believing that it is therefore time to chill, which, when you truly rest, doesn't just mean doing whatever you might desire. Sometimes it means growing into desiring better things, and wouldn't you know the most marvelous thing for that in the entire world are the holy scriptures of Christianity. So we'll be doing some of that this morning with your questions and answers, dealing with the world as we see it, pivoting as we need to, being willing to change our minds, if so be it. But then again, trust Trusting that he is risen, you are paid for, you are immortal, and he won't be long now. The creedal reality of Catholic Christianity, a thing that everybody can agree about, is something everybody can still agree about as Christians, and frankly, the world should not be so far behind us, because we speak a lot of reason when we talk about how to manage humans who have issues with justification, humans who have issues with shame, humans who have issues with needing to have repercussions and reciprocity, and they don't know how to deal with the spiritual pain of what? Trauma and past and systematic things that make you feel like the whole world's against you because we all experience that on some level because the devil is against you. See, Christianity is at least one of the very realistic and common sense ways of managing that, even if you don't believe it. And this is demonstrated by all sorts of people who live this way, who live in Christian churches, don't really believe it, and have better lives because of it. Now imagine if you actually tried to believe the thing. It really might, might shift you a little bit on your axis, and maybe that would be out of the bent and back into the upright position, if you know what I'm saying. C.S. Lewis fans out there. All that said, that's what we're going to be digging into this morning. I do not have a particular monologue for you. We're going to go to a quick short break, come over to the, your questions right away, but then later we're going to be looking at my book, uh, talk them into it, the new one. I've been reading my new book because I wrote it a little fast, honestly, and, and I, so I wasn't quite sure what was in it. I mean, I knew, and yet at the same time, how did I say that again? And looking at it again, I, I look forward to walking through it with you, as well as version 2.0, which I thought about, should I rush out the typo edits? And there's not that many, really, but I'm a little bit, um, I would like this book to be as gisted and clear as possible, and I think uh, 2.0 uh, will be even better than the present. But the present uh, will be a, is, is a how-to manual as pondering devotional wisdom. I mean, this isn't just like straight bullet points, although the bullet points are there if you look for them. Uh, a a how-to devotional daily wisdom guide to prayerfully beginning to talk to your friends and neighbors about who Jesus is, how he's risen, how he's paid for them, as well as you, and what this means for your neighborhood. You know, what this means for everybody uh, is such a good thing. Today is such an important day in my world, by the way. Uh, if you do have a prayer life in which you believe that you have a triune, it has to be triune, holy God, who also reveals himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, would you please pray for me today? Today is a day in which how do I say this? Imagine the trick pool shot where you're going to send like four balls off running in directions, and you're going to say one last ball, and it's got to be timed just right to hit everything else as everything moves at the right time, and it should all be pretty easy as long as you don't hesitate and flinch, uh, because frankly, again, our religion and common sense always wins, right? So uh, that that is an amazing thing to believe, and by win, I mean you can just die confident. <laughs> you know, even if they're killing you and you're not winning the war, you're like, yeah, but I'll see you guys later. <laughs> And it's going to really not go well for you if you hate Jesus on that day. I'm going to be like, have mercy. Oh, we can't. They're with them now? God, well, yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but, but as I die, uh, that's not what I'm going to say when I'm dying, right? On, on the day of resurrection, I'll be praising hallelujah for what our Lord does in judgment against the enemy, right? The enemy being the demon and all his followers. But on this day, I'm, I'm more willing to die letting you kill me in order that I might tell you he is risen. See you later. <laughs> 
you know, as I go. And and is it easy to say that? No, it's not easy to say that. Does that always feel good when I have to think myself through that? No, it doesn't always feel good when I have to think myself through that. I'm an American just like you. I got the first world problems just like you. It's not easy to tell your spirit to sit down and be quiet and to make your body obey what the scripture says as opposed to what the, the, the boob tube's telling you to do. <laughs> it is not easy, and especially emotionally. The whole thing's set up to be a despair, like uh, incinerator, just to pull you further and further into your own isolated, like devoid of reality world where everything's sort of far away and nothing that's in front of you really matters. I mean, and when you're there, you know, who, what are you trying to be? You're trying to be God. So it, it isn't surprising we find the spiritual decay in our world today as it is, and doubly so given that the modern world doesn't believe there is such a thing as spiritual decay. It's interesting also. I, I, I gotta say, it's one of my favorite things to watch, and it makes me nervous, and yet I think it means Christianity is well-positioned if we want to believe it again, is that there is amongst rising—you can call them pagans, but paganism is such a wide thing. I mean, there's the pagans that are shedding the blood of goats in southern Oregon right now, like out of Ashland, as as some connection with their hope for the future of the west side of the Rockies, right? You got, you got that stuff going on, and then you got people who just think they're going to be named Starflower in the next life, right? And, and you know, so there, there's, there's a wide variety of paganism, but what's really nice about the more critical or thinking pagans, the ones that have learned from, say, the Greeks how to have a common-sense sentence and conversation and learn something from people they disagree with, they think that modernism is a bad thing, too. They think the idea that there is only a material plane and that there is no other dimensional reality around us that might be cognizant of what's going on is nonsense. And so, like, Christianity is like, yeah, we've been saying that. We, we, well, we kind of have been. We've been selling out for 50 years. Sorry. We, we like the lifestyle. The nice cars. I mean, they're nice cars and it's air-conditioned. People used to die and stuff, you know? So, so I get it. I get it. It is not easy to turn our back on that. And I'm going to tell you, you don't have to turn your back on that. A Catholic Christian, a true one, right? One who believes in the Trinity. One who believes Jesus has risen from the dead. One, one who believes that the regeneration of faith means a new life in the present. One who believes he's coming again, and this is our great hope. Well, you can hear the, the hospital in the background. Uh, the Catholic Christian... The Catholic Christian wants to stand and say that to the world. That you want to hold up the emblem of your God, right? Not hide it. We've been hiding Jesus. And meanwhile, now again, the pagans have done the work for us. They're tearing down modernism for us. Actually, I should say, God is tearing down modernism by means of the pagans doing what pagans do. Because at the bottom of paganism is an irrational doctrine. It is a doctrine of chaos. And the the uninitiated pagan may not see this yet. But when you get to the bottom, it, intellectually, it does have no common sense without the first mover. And since paganism doesn't really believe there is a first mover at the very bottom of it, right? you have to become kind of a stoic at that point, uh, it doesn't hold to that. Instead, it worships irrationality. And irrationality begets more irrationality. When you have an irrational thought, the next thought you have is not, I'll fix that. <laughs> the next th- thought you have is less rational. This is how you get in arguments emotionally, by the way. Have you ever had that happen where you're like, oh, did I say? Ouch! I can't get it back now, right? Like that reality is when irrational be- begets irrational. So Christianity presupposes, as all rational people do, uh, a creator— <laughs> Uh, and Christianity also reveals this too, by the way, but we presuppose a creator who is reasonable and therefore has made whatever we might see, no matter how chaotic it might look, quantum physics, whatever we might see, you know, it is reasonable. 
even if we can't reason our way through it because there's a higher reason than ourselves. And if you don't have that concept of a higher reason than yourself that Eusebea, that Socrates and Xenophon spoke about as the way that they understood the world, well, I'd contend that, that you're just part of death. <laughs> and have fun. It's going to hurt, though. So don't complain when it hurts. Like, if you're complaining that your death is hurting because you don't believe it exists or has any solutions, like... I can't help you anymore. He's risen, right? Like, so, so let's buy into that one here. Let's act as if that's a reality in how we train ourselves to think, which means not listening to everybody else just tell us what to think all the time. And instead, let the scriptures be the guide to trust in the Lord with all our might as a people, as families, which would mean having families, desiring families, fathers, Begetting families in the image of the All-Father, of the, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To put our heart and soul into that again, while the world burns, is not to do what Nero did, which is fiddle while the world burns. What that is to do, to have a family right now, right now, when it's like the worst, oh my goodness, it's all going to fall, we got to move to like another country or something. Like to have a family right now is to believe and build upon the things that Jesus has said will endure even when nations collapse. So, you know, the American nonsense is this idea that by having less humans, we'll have more prosperity. And that's the, that is, it's just wrong. Why would you want prosperity to begin with if it's not to share with more humans? How lonely is it to play a video game for eight hours for four days straight? And you wonder why you're tired. And you wonder why you feel bad. It's because you're an animal. <laughs> an animal with a breath. With a spirit. And frankly, the machines, as cool as they can be, and definitely as addictive as that red color is, oh my goodness, uh, they do not feed your breath. Right? They, don't, they, don't, they don't. It's not good for man to be alone. I'm tangenting a bit. I said it was going to be quick, and then we come back to your questions. The point of all of this is what the point of all of this always is. That Christians are a people set apart. That's what the word holy means. And that's not about being sanctimonious and tutting the world. It's actually about laughing a little bit at your own sin at a certain point, and then taking it gravely, seriously, and trying to leave it there. Huh? You laugh at his accusation as to your identity. Never doubt that. And then scoff at its assertion that it shall always win. And then get back up and fight again, right? He's risen. You're gonna too. Every time you fall down, just one step closer to getting up forever. I'm gonna take a little break. We'll come back with your questions and answers here on Mad Christianity Saturday morning chill. I don't even know what I'm doing, but it won't be that long. Stick around. Hopefully it will work. It looks like everything is set up. Uh, we have a troll, which is great. The troll... I don't get the light on my face. This I still have to work on my lighting here. I'm sorry about all that. The shadow bothers me. If it bothers you, it bothers me. Um, we have a troll. So if you picked up my new book, Talk Them Into It, where are you? Right there. If you picked up my new book, Talk Them Into It, or gotten the free copy, which you can get just by subscribing to Mad Mondays, the newsletter that data mines real information from the news around the world for you, so you can stop listening to the white noise and just kind of get on with your life, while also knowing if Antifa's around the corner. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, well, that's what we do there. Sign up for that, and then you will be able to get the free copy of the book. You can read it. You'll realize that, yeah, maybe it's probably worth having a paperback copy of this book, since it's like so devotional and really, ooh, I got to think about that page. Yeah. Oh, and, and 
It's like written like every page is supposed to be. It's a wisdom book. The goal is to have wisdom be something you gradually imbibe that becomes your mouthing. He has risen. You are paid for to your friends and neighbors. There's a troll in the book, though, and so that's because there are trolls in the world. Trolls are in, in internet parlance those people who mean you no good at all, right? Uh, they they intend to simply badger you or win you over by what Nietzsche would call the will to power, which is the observation that might does make right as long as right finally shuts up. And so, so trolls are, are people who, whether they realize it or not, they've imbibed that path to truth and conversation. But there are taxed tactics for handling trolls. There are ways to have a conversation with the troll, and there are ways to end a conversation with the troll that don't join their own way of doing things, right? That actually have their interests in mind. They seek to treat your enemy as if you want to repay them good for evil, even though all they're going to do is give you evil. I mean, a, a real troll on the internet, all they're doing is hurting you. They really are. And the sooner you realize that, the better. <laughs> uh, but but uh, it doesn't mean you have to hurt them, but that doesn't mean you have to keep talking to them either. So, so in the book, there is a whole section on how to talk to a troll in real life or on the internet. It's not that long, but it's, it's just some, again, basic tips for how to be kind, even when the world is not kind. How to be nice uh, when the world is not nice. Yeah, so in any case, as a result, and because of you all helping us reach over 1,000 subscribers for Mad Mondays, we have an alt version of the cover that went out in the initial mailing of the free ebook, and it had a troll instead of an apple on the front cover. If you can imagine how cute that would look, maybe someday we'll release a paperback version of that um, Christmas time or something like that. We'll see. We'll see what comes around. But point being, troll is our new friend and friend. Our friend. That's not even a word, friend. Uh, our new friend who's going to be hanging around. That's why he's there. And then, of course, uh, that that amazing picture that makes me look downright prophetic, honestly. It's like, what kind of wizard is this man um, speaking and breathing Christ? Uh, that's the Darkshore logo. Darkshore is the publishing house under which uh, talk them into a publishing house, as if it's a house, right? You know, the, the, the uh, sole proprietorship under which... We're going to be publishing a lot of stuff through Mad Christianity, and the reason for Dark Store will come out later is what that is, but there's our working logo. It probably won't be me forever. We'll come up with something uh, way cooler than that, but it is – that was drawn by one of you, and that's why I want to share it. Like, you out there who do this kind of stuff, I don't even – it comes and I'm like – I don't know how to respond to that. Like, it's so cool. It's so amazing. Um, I wish I felt like that. Like, how that picture looks, right? That's how I wish I felt all the time. And I really don't. Uh, and it's just so... Ugh, you can see the rage of the courage in it, too. It's just so marvelously masculine. Thank you very much uh, for that. Uh, and anybody who ever does stuff like that with words I say, I always try to retweet you if you, if you quote me from a book or whatever, um, because it means a lot to me. It means that what I'm doing for you is, is actually creating the faith, which I want you to have, right? It's not just about me talking into a, a camera because again I'm, I'm not with any breath in this room at the moment it's just me all right so moving on from that to actual questions let's see here i had this all set up at one point let's start with this one all right old man eyesight oh right in the mic too sorry about that hello pastor fisk says caleb i'm a young teenage theologian who intends on going to seminary to become a pastor all right there's more than one route you know so just be wary of that or be mindful of that i should say it's like worth looking into Recently, I have been pondering the gift of communion, okay, and had a few questions about its relationship to the Old Testament atonement sacrifices. Hmm. Knowing that the Old Testament tells us that the blood of a sacrifice equals the sacrifice's life, yeah, that's pretty cool, huh? We know that if the priests were to have been drinking the blood of the sacrifice, he would have been drinking death because the blood was no longer living. Yeah, and it's from a dead animal. It's from a dead animal. Even when the animal's alive, it's a dead animal. And so are you. Hmm. I think that might be the answer we're going to get to. We'll see. Um, 
is a wonderful contrast to the Lord's great gift of his own living. Yes, you're right. Yes, blood and living body that binds himself and his life to us whenever we partake of it. Exactly. Um, this, yes, this led me to a theoretical rabbit hole, however, and I fell right in. My first question was when, when, okay, so yeah, before you get there, the real like rabbit hole of this one is the argument that is often used by the sacramentarians. That is, those who do not believe the, the plain words about Jesus, this is my body, this is my blood, a sacramentarian, someone who says it's not what it seems like. Okay, so that's that's a lot of people. Okay, A primary argument made by a lot of people, uh, once they get nerdy about it, is that to eat the body and blood of Jesus is to be a cannibal, and that cannibalism is clearly foreboden in the Old Testament, and that's in the original German there, foreboden. Um, and uh, since it's clearly foreboden, therefore Jesus could not have meant what he said, even though it sounds like what he said, and all the other texts sound like that's what he said. Instead, it could not be that because uh, he had human blood and you can't eat human blood. And I think you're, you've stumbled onto the very present answer to that. I was like, well, no, no, you're not supposed to eat any blood, not just human blood. You're not supposed to eat any blood because there's, there's life in the blood. And the life in the blood is the blood of Adam and the blood of cows that are connected to Adam, which is dying blood. The blood you normally eat and the blood you would get in a blood transfusion, it might help you stay alive for a little while. But it's not really like living blood, right? Uh, Ever-living blood, right? Hey, what was – who's the – the con in Star Trek that does that? Uh, anyway, nah, anyway. So Jesus comes along. He's like, all right, so check it out, all y'all. Way back in the day, you were not supposed to drink the blood of the cows because it was dead and it won't help you. In fact, it'll just tie you to their death spiritually. And so here's the deal. Now I am going to replace the whole universe and here's my blood that isn't dead. Right? It's, it's living life blood. Here's that. You eat, drink that, believe it, right? I'll be back later. Check out. All right, so so the, you see the, the flip there? What the sacramentarian believes is an argument against the Lord's Supper is an argument for the Lord's Supper. This is often the case. It really is. It's just a matter of what is your a priori assumption. Is your a priori assumption that the modern world is true entirely and there's no spiritual way physical things do spiritual things, which is really nonsensical if you think about it and read the Bible at all. And then, uh, or, or can you let that weird linchpin of 500 years ago begin to resolve itself and reunite Protestantism by believing what the Bible says, like the whole idea was supposed to start with. That's what Without Flesh is about, by the way. How if the Protestantism, Protestant world today would repent of his sacramentarianism and find the Lord's Supper, they would grow again, they would find life again, they would unite the church again in Scripture. But when you will not believe the most central institution of Scripture that is given, is how can you walk around saying, I'm a Bible-believing Christian? This is my body. No, it doesn't. No, it's not. Well, then you're not, right? And you'll wonder why we fragment, and we fragment, and we fragment, and we divide. It's because we're all chasing human opinions, because no one believes the word is can even work anymore. We've got to argue over that one. So quibbling, quibbling is what sacramentarian has done to us, as a tradition. And let me suggest that quibbling hasn't helped us. I'm not saying doctrine doesn't matter, and I'm not saying don't stand upon the word of God. The word of God should be a fire in your bones. But when your doctrine is so convinced you to stop speaking the word of God, well, then there's something wrong with your doctrine, isn't it? Seems like it to me. And so even if your doctrine is true, you've managed to do something with it. You managed to undo it by your own babble, by your own reinterpretation to turn it against Christ. And the simplicity of being a child who sees Christ and says, yes, Lord, yes. And so this will be the answer to your question. You ran down a rabbit hole because you ran down your own head. Don't do that. <laughs> like, like, do it a little bit, but not when you're trying to, like, get to the mysteries of God, right? Anytime you're pondering beyond the veil according to Revelation, right? God said it. We can't see it, but we believe it's true. Trinity. There you go. Right? This first main one, right? Ponder that. That's great. So long as you always end with this thought. 
clearly that's the mystery and the proof of his godhead. The fact that it doesn't make sense the way I want it to. Clearly, he is greater than I awe. The, the wonder of what he has yet to reveal. The, the beyond our imagination, glory of God. All the way that Paul always talks that way. He's not just kind of rambling. <laughs> he means like there's things that, that are revealed by God that don't make any sense. They're primarily things to do with his eternal essence, like how God's guts look. Like he, when, he, when he tells us that, we're like, that's weird. Yeah, well, you know. I mean, you think alien life would be weird. you got to imagine almighty, all-father, all-powerful creators, omniscient, omnipresent, all that stuff. You know, he's going to be different than you. We don't really believe that's our major problem. So anyway, let's, let's get to your rabbit hole, but I'm going to really throw it away, I think, because the, the question that it's like, it just, the question is your own skepticism in your flesh, using your brain to try to po- like poke a little hole in your trust. Okay. And it's, it, you just, there's a certain line that you should know. I'm asking a question of this text. That if it doesn't end in me saying Alleluia, it's a bad question. Because it's not about the question. It's not about what the answer to the content is. It's about, am I willing to submit to an authority that's higher than me and just trust him? And let me just suggest that as Americans, we're particularly bad at this. We have nothing in our society on any level that teaches us to authentically trust humans. We have all sorts of things that teach us to trust authority that shouts at us, but very little. That would teach to authentically trust anyone. That's why we live in so much fear. Uh, even though we're in the freest country in the world. It's just, it's just crazy, isn't it? It's crazy. Anyway, blah, uh, blah, 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 blah. Here's the rabbit hole. My first question was, when, the disciples, when did the disciples first have communion outside the Last Supper? We know that Christ shared the meal with the two on the road to Emmaus, but when did the 11 disciples first have communion? Um, well, so far as we know, right, the Bible says on Pentecost Sunday, uh, they met after that day, daily, I believe, but it was certainly also the Lord's Day, but for a while there it was daily. Um, they met after that day for the breaking of the bread, the fellowship, and the prayer, right? So this is this is code language where if you want it to be like the New York Times, then you just don't know what the New York Times is anymore, do you now? It's been a rag for a long time. So you can't just let it twist the words for you. If you un- want to understand what's going on, uh, at the root of that language, you have to let that language mean what it meant in the first century Greek. So the, the breaking of bread in the New Testament, if you track that out from there, is code language for the Lord's Supper in almost every scenario. And the one exception would be at the end of Acts when they're on the, the boat. And I'm not sure it's not there either. I'm not sure you don't have a boat-wide conversion to Christianity going on in any case. So breaking of bread is very clearly a reference to the sacrament. The, the prayers is not a reference to prayer in general. If you look, it's a plural word. It's kind of a technical term. It's a reference to the liturgical prayers of the synagogal life that is the Psalms largely, but then also how that connected to what we do inherit from the, the synagogue in the, the common liturgy or the historic format of the liturgy that many Catholic Christians still use, although most who would call themselves just Christian have abandoned all of it in favor of their, their pastor's favorite ideas from last week and whatever book he bought. In any case, <laughs> so, so it would seem from that, um, oh, and, and then the apostles' teaching is there, right? So that they're preaching, they're eating bread, Mm, and wine, and then they're they're praying in the history of the liturgy, not tying it to Pharisaism, but seeing in the Old Testament a, a uh, the the meat, right, the meat of Christianity, and then believing that that um, 
that structure of temple worship that, that was a shadow then of the true heaven is still a shadow of the true heaven, and so ours also ought to reflect that. So most, most congregations built before everyone lost their minds in the last 30 years were built to look like the temple just out of belief that we actually were in the heavenly temple with Jesus every time we have the sacrament, right? But the loss of that kind of spirituality, to have a religion that has no spirituality in it, like Protestantism tends to do, right? Weird on that level. Um, unless it's doing the pagan, like, is the sun shining today? God's happy with me thing. And weird again on that level. Um, having lost that, right? Um, how, how do we put it back in? That's, that's a different question. So, so when was their first communion? That was your real question. And, and my, my, I'm going to say it was at least by Pentecost, but I don't know. Did he have communion with them on the road to Emmaus? Um, I would suggest no, but I think that's one of those places where it's like, you know, piety, whatever you want to feel about that. I, it's not going to hurt our doctrine anywhere. Um, because your question, it, it doesn't really get undone by any of these things. So, so following this then, you know, my pastor and I theorized it might have been with Thomas when Thomas was away. And Jesus appeared to them um, like that very night. I guess it could have been. It, they would have told us if they wanted us to know, and they didn't, right? And then the next week as well with Thomas, but I wanted to know what you thought. Now, if I'm not mistaken, there's a little bit more here to this question. So we're going to keep oh, – where'd my window go that gives me this? There it is. Um, so let's see. We're going to keep going. My second question then uh, is regarding Jesus' body. So again, my answer is going to be I don't, I don't know that Jesus instituted it again with them um, after his resurrection – I, I, and I would imagine that while he was with them, they were not having his supper with them. But then again, maybe they were. I mean, we don't know. And they didn't tell us, right? And so it, it doesn't matter. And, and again, because of where the second question is going to go, I think, again, it's, it's like at a certain point, you just have to be comfortable knowing that the Lord's Supper came from them, from the Lord, and through the church's birth at Pentecost became the standard weekly practice of the church. And just take that for what it is. Right. And then the rest of it. Yeah. If you want to believe that, you know, when Jesus appeared and they weren't and Thomas wasn't there, but that night they sat down and they had bread and wine and he said it all again. Great. Right. But it, it just becomes pious speculation at that point. Right. And so what we want to do generally, especially when we're talking publicly and teaching, right, it's one thing if you're having a private conversation. But when you're talking publicly, you want to stick to less of the speculation and more of what you know for certain. Right. And so this kind of topic is just like, you know. You know, and I think uh, here, let's go with the second question. Uh, so you say, knowing that due to the fall, we suffer an unnatural tearing between our body and soul called death. I don't think I know that, especially with the word soul in the sense. Um, I'm going to say body and breath. Yes. Okay. Well, so we'll leave it there. And, and nephish becomes a very deep topic. Uh, but I think that the word soul hurts us at this point in English. Uh, can we take it back? Maybe we can try, but it's only going to happen by saying that it doesn't quite the idea that you have this thing that's material only and this thing that's spiritual only and and you leave one here and and you take the other I don't I'm just not so sure certainly certainly at death the physical elements which make up our bodies our bodies that were a moment ago us are are like not filled with breath, not filled with spirit. But the word soul has a lot more baggage than either of those other words I just said. So anyway, so I'm just not, I'm not granting your entire um, uh, premise, although I understand what you're saying. I'm neither am I really in disagreement. I just, this is just a hobby horse of mine, and I think it's really important. Um, uh, so, so anyway, uh, I wondered, uh, did Jesus, when he gave up his spirit, see, notice it says spirit there, on the cross, uh, go through this splitting apart, or did he, because of his divine nature, still have his physical body when he descended into hell, much like the physical body, he's sitting on a throne, 
um, in heaven, and his physical body is present in the community as well. So, sitting on the throne of heaven with the physical body, that's up for debate, actually, too. I kind of like that one. I think maybe he does it some days. Other days, he just has a cup of coffee somewhere else. I don't know. Um, but th- that's a deep topic. On the physical body in the descent into hell, well, see, what you would be suggesting here is that he didn't really die, unfortunately, right? Uh, it, it, there's an old principle for all these questions. And you can reject the principle if you want, but the early church saw this principle as founded on Scripture. Uh, which is that if Jesus didn't do it or was incapable of doing it, and we can do it, then that part of us is not redeemed, and then that part of you is not saved, and that's you still. This is different than talking about the flesh and the the decay that will be undecayed, right? That, that's an inversion, not a creation. That's a, that's a chaos removal, not a creation decay. Uh, so I'm not talking about that. Uh, but if, if Jesus did not redeem you by doing everything that you receive as your punishment, well, then he didn't redeem you. And so so the idea of the descent into hell becomes a bit confusing as well because the word hell has more than one possible referent, especially in the scriptures. So I'm going to say that he's not descending into the end times lake of fire into which nothing has been put yet. And the devil and all his angels are not there yet. And you can read Revelation. It's right there. It's pretty clear. Uh, they're they're going to be thrown in later. Uh, and right now, there's like this unknown place that we sometimes call hell, but isn't that last end times place? And frankly, the Bible's really not clear on it. After you die, you don't get to change your mind. We know that. We know it's better by far to depart and be with Christ. Right? We know stuff like that, but but we really don't know. You know, when we say that Jesus descended into hell, there's not a lot of scripture to explain what that meant or what it looked like. And we're, and we're very confident it's not the bodily hell of the end world, right? It's, it's, it's the end times. It, it is not uh, a physical place to begin with. The idea that he's descending into a physical place goes against your very question that there's like this like removal of the physical body, right? So, uh, so he, he, he wouldn't have been able to go there with his body. Now, the amazing thing to flip this is that he did go into heaven, a non-physical place, with his body. That's nuts. And that's, that's where like the, well, is he on a throne or not question comes along, right? And I think it's just it's, – it's sanctimonious at a certain point to argue about it. It's pious to talk about it, right? So there's a real danger, though, because we have a history of arguing about this stuff. Um, so, all right. Uh, so did he, his descent into hell then? So what do, what do we know? I just said we don't know a lot about what the descent into hell is, according to scripture. Most of it comes from Peter, and they're not the clearest passages. There's one in Ephesians coming up for Holy Cross Sunday, I think, right? No, no, it's next week. St. Matthew. Um, uh, St. Matthew's uh, minor feast day. Um, oh, now I forgot what it was uh, by, by thinking about St. Matthew. Hold on, I'll get it. Uh, oh, Ephesians 4. Uh, Ephesians 4 is going to talk about his descent and his ascent and what does this mean. But it's not the clearest passage ever. And so it's like trying to nail down what the ancient church said in some extreme level and to then make uh, uh, kind of pronouncements based on our reason from that, from he descended into hell as a phrase, I think is just going a bit far. What we know for certain is that after Jesus dies, his spirit is not in is not in perdition in a non-victorious way. So his breath, the Holy Spirit, uh, assumingly not going with his human spirit into whatever this abyss, this Hades, this hell, whatever you want to call it. Is there fire there? Sure. You know, there's a number of passages that imply that, um, but there's no bodies there, you know, whatever. What we know is that the moment he dies, it's finished. And when he's in this place as a breath, as a spirit, as a, if you want to use soul, that's fine. And it's, it's his own place. He owns it from the top, 
He's just coming in on the bottom as a prisoner, right? But but he's not a prisoner. He walks in. He's like, I'm the king. What's up, everybody? I'm the king. You know, then <laughs> that's it. And so that's his descent into hell. That's all we know is that when he was in death, he was not a prisoner. And it was three days, right? And then he walked right out like he didn't care. Except he did care. He walked right out like he cared very much. So the other way around, right? He walked right out like this was it. Look what I did. Oh, peace be with you. There's some spirit you didn't have before. Yeah? Like, so he's, he knew what he was doing all the way on this. Um, it does not involve a physical body resurrecting to go into hell first. That, that would just undo so many tears of Christianity, right? And that's where the challenge of speculation is. You're like, okay, this makes sense. This makes sense. This makes sense. This makes sense. And you're out on this, like, you're out on this rabbit trail. But then in the body of Christianity, there's more like a brain network than like a, like a, a hierarchy order of everything just kind of in order. It's more like a networked organic reality, right? Floating around in the scriptures themselves as opposed to some documents we write that we say are what scripture says. Like those are valuable, right? But scriptures are organized as it is. And with all of that being there kind of floating around and being true, if you want to take your own concept of it and then come up with ideas over here, you might have something way over in reality you don't even realize you're completely destroying. This is where, and it's fun, I had a guy two weeks ago, whatever, get mad on Twitter at me. I get mad on Twitter on me. No. I had a sacramentarian be upset with me on Twitter for answering a question that I thought was an honest question, so I just gave an honest answer. Um, which is, what's, you know, what's the, why are Lutherans against, uh, uh, you know, or believing so firmly that the Calvinist sacramentarian position is wrong? And I was like, well, it's effectively Nestorian. That was my answer. And he, like, he got all heard about it. Like, oh, how can you say such mean things? I mean, mean things. Like, like, I think that when you look at what you say about the Lord's Supper and it being the body of Christ, if you then say that about the body of Christ, you end up Nestorian. <laughs> That's what I think, you know? And I think you should, rather than get all heard about that kind of thing, go and look at who Nestorians argued against, the Eutychians, uh, and, and then you should accuse me of Eutychianism because that would be the easy out, the straw man for you. The problem is I'm not a Eutychian. Uh, the problem is I understand Eutychianism. The Roman Catholics are more like the Eutychians. Transubstantiation is more like Eutychianism. Okay? Uh, but but is, you know, are you Roman Catholic? Did I hurt your feelings? I'm sorry that I called you a Eutychian. <laughs> you know? Oh, my goodness. Can we, uh, can we grow up and become men and leave behind the world in which we're, our feelings are always so hurt? Right? I get it. I get it. I have them too. But, like, we've been trained to be so sensitive, and we need to train ourselves instead to be wise. And there's a big, big improvement in that reality. Yeah, and it comes from God and the God-man who tells us that we cannot die, and so, yeah, they can hurt you. And, yeah, it's not sticks and stones. None of that nonsense about how it's not going to hurt. The point, again, is what do you do with the words when they come? When somebody comes to you and he says, you ask a question, right? What about? And they say something, and it's like not what you wanted to hear. You know what the proverb says about that, do you? It says a wise man says, thank you for what you said. Like whatever it was. Like you are the most evil person I've ever met, and you must always – thank you. I will ponder that. Appreciate it. Can you, ex- can you elaborate a little bit? I'll, I'll take notes. It doesn't mean you believe whatever they say. But you treat them as if maybe they have something to say. Now, again, trolls can be <laughs> another thing. But the point here is that um, repentance means growth by definition of seeing a better way, seeing a change. Uh, anyway, so, so then that usually is inhibited by the questions that would send us off looking for things the scriptures don't say. right? So it's, it's neat. I like the fantasy. I like the imagination. But what about applying it to things you can know? Rather than speculating about what Jesus' body might have been like, why not speculate about what it's like right now in, as, with, you? 
like I remember growing up and hearing people talk about how the Holy Spirit's inside of you, and I really as I became a Lutheran more and more, learned to despise that kind of talk because generally that kind of talk means don't look at the Bible, trust your feelings. And that's really a bad advice, just straight up, terrible advice. So I was always against that talk uh, for that reason. Um, but more and more, uh, the idea that we need to have our hearts connected to our minds, uh, the idea that we are to be not merely memorizing ideas, but imbibing a word that changes us by promises, not by commands. Um, that seems to be a better way to focus our time. And in this way, so I eat the Lord's Supper, right? Here I am. This is now the body of Jesus. Now forget where he is in heaven right now. Forget how his body did whatever it did between then and now. Just for a moment here, this bread is the crucified and living you can't really separate them. Jesus of Nazareth, according to his institution promise and command as king of kings and lord of lords. Like you're like, I don't believe it. Well, then don't take it. Okay, that's what we say. Don't take it. It's a bad idea to take it if you don't believe it. I, you do believe it. Okay, now let's, let's see what it means that you believe this. So this physical bread going into your mouth, regardless of how you understand its chemical apparatus and its, its tie into both the quantum realm and the fourth dimensional demonic angelic war between light and darkness, or however you want to figure out that looks like, is it manga? I don't know. You know, what's going on is that the risen king man, God, is entering your corpus, your body, your corpse, your undead and dying decaying Adamic corpse and he is declaring to you it's not only that anymore but now it's his no not just he's saving you your body's now his body his body is so powerful that like you would teach about that drop of water disappearing into the ocean what it does is it goes into you and it doesn't so much disappear in the ocean it overwhelms the ocean and sends all the evil and wickedness flying out through him back in his cross to his grave it's pretty sweet. And then you can know that. Like, here, I ate it, and it's like, like well, how, can, how can bread do such great things? Because well, Jesus said so? I'm just going to believe my king now. Thank you. I'm going to kneel. I'm going to eat the whey bread and manna that he's given me, and I'm going to stand up and believe what he said, that now this body is no longer just my body. You are not your own. You have been purchased at the market, the agora, for a price. It's an honor. It's an atonement. It's such a powerful word. It is the slave-buying word. You are slaves of Jesus. He has paid for you now. You belong to him. That means when he sends you back out of church, with that body in your stomach, with the words that make that body faith in your mind and heart and filling your entire self, you walk out not alone. You walk out a kingdom. Not to build a kingdom, not to make a kingdom. You are the kingdom walking out from there with the promise that no matter how bad you muff it up over there, he's got your good in mind. Just come on back and let him forgive you and teach you how to not muff it up quite the same way next time, right? But the, the thing is, you're walking out there and you can do no wrong. There, there, You can do wrong. Ha! You can still take that the wrong way. But you cannot ruin God's plan, right? That's what I mean. You cannot do God's plan wrong. God's plan will do God's plan. You can do you wrong. God's plan wants you to not. God's plan tells you you won't. It promises you that you won't. You have to believe that's what election means. Otherwise, you don't believe you're saved. And if you don't believe you're saved, 
I'm not sure I know what that means, actually, at that point. I know there's Christians who doubt their salvation. Um, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when you like just can say, I don't believe I'm saved. Like, what do you do as a Christian at that point? So if you believe you're saved, you have to believe this again. And again, the supper then just comes in physically. It's, it's a spirituality that's also religious, right? I'm not spiritual. I'm religious. I take the Lord's Supper. Let's <laughs> just invert that too. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a religious spiritual reality that guarantees the promise as a whole body experience. So rather than just being an idea, I have to tell myself in my head, now it's happening to me corporally, which again means body, right? His body, my body, one. And we moderns think it's just about how I understand it. How much did I understand that? Did I understand what just happened? Am I paying attention enough to what just happened? How much can I understand it? That'll make it work that much more. Right? And, and like, there's like more humanity than that in you, <laughs> right? There's just simply the fact that you are created out of dust and need food. And now the God is risen from the dead, Who's, who's like letting all the rest of the food do whatever it's doing. It's like, now just eat this. Like just that alone, physically. You're coming to him, vine to the branch, all that kind of stuff, right? King to people, liege to liege, Lord. All that's being tied into a marvelous moment that makes all the mythologies pale reflections of what's actually happening when he physically enters you. And then, because of his unity with the Spirit and the Father, means that when you talk with your breath, your soul, it is the word of God every time you talk his words. That is not my breath alone. And if you just want to make this nice and speculatively homey, imagine and remember that the guardian angels are real. And as a result of this very thing, right? Because the spirit of God dwells within you and moves you, even though you mean it for evil, the Lord intends it for good and for your good until the last moment. Right? He intends it for your good. All along the way, you got angels watching you. You got angels with you. You got powers and principalities that are on your side. You can't control them. You can't manipulate them. You don't really want to talk to them generally. You want to believe what the scripture says about them again, that they're on your side. Uh, and so you can confidently walk out breathing the Spirit of God, knowing that it's not just you wherever you go. Uh, powers, principalities, angels, hosts, they're all with you. Yeah? So, okay, okay, okay. Uh, so we're going to go back to your question now. <laughs> I went way off. Uh, so this split apart. Okay. I'm, re- I'm going to restart your question. Knowing that due to the fall, we suffer an unnatural tearing between our body and soul called death. Uh, yeah. Okay. I wondered, did Jesus, when he gave up his spirit on the cross, go through the splitting apart? And I said, no, to that, um, uh, uh, but then, okay. 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 I read that one. Sorry. Here we go. Later. You continued, uh, Caleb continued to theorize and wondered what would happen if the disciples were to have partaken of communion while Christ was dead. Would they have been drinking and eating the dead God? Um, well, I, I think my answer said already, like he was alive, even though his body wasn't. So I, the answer is, I don't know. It's like, you know, can God make a box so big he can't hold? Like, oh, wow, you came up with that one on your own. Now I'm not supposed to be a Christian anymore because that's so smart. Like, like the question at a certain point is too smart for its own good. Okay? Now, I'm not saying this because I don't like you. I'm saying this because you need to read Proverbs more than speculate. I should just leave it at that. Some questions are not wise questions. It's not, when it, I, there's no such thing. If you're in a classroom... You're the teacher. There's no such thing as a bad question. So in this way, your question to me, not a bad question, so long as you hear the answer. And the answer is that there are wiser questions than these. Right? So that there, is a, there is a path from foolish question to wise question. And the foolish question is not foolish if the fool listens to the answer. <laughs> 
But see, fools ask foolish questions usually because they're not listening. I don't think that's you. You're talking to your pastor. That's great. So, so here you go. Again, um, the question itself is nonsense. It didn't happen. What if doesn't matter? The Lord intended what is. What is past is as good as written in stone or more. It's better than written in stone. It's written in the blood and the, the DNA pouring from the, the veins of the Son of God on the cross. So, so you know, what if, I mean, can I just go back to C.S. Lewis and Lucy? You know, what about them? What about them? And as I said, it's not your story, man. No, Lucy, woman. These days, who knows? Our rabbit, as, speaking of that, our rabbit, I'm not going to speak. We have a rabbit. No, we have a rabbit that has changed genders twice since we, we got it, or three times now. <laughs> Back and forth. It's all in the times these days. This this rabbit's so needy. Um, <laughs> uh, we, we, we learned they behave differently as they get older. When they're small, when rabbits are small, they're small. And so, you know, unless you're really, really picky and pushy, you're, you're, it's kind of hard to tell. But their behavior changes over time. And uh, he began... He's courting my daughters. That's the best part. He, he, he's hurting and, and kind of slowly trying to entice uh, uh, my daughters to uh, one of them to like be his like cuddle mate forever. Like they, they, they're amazing. They cuddle. But like, and don't take this wrong. Like it ain't going to happen, right? Rabbit ain't going to happen. But you can watch his little behavior in the warren, right? And see what he's doing as the, as the beta male because he's acknowledged I'm the alpha male. He just puts his head right on the ground. He's like, nope, you're in charge. Uh, <laughs> I love this rabbit so much. But but it's so funny to watch his little like, you know, two and a half month, three month old rabbit brain decide who he's going to mate with. And it's like my, you know, my, my 15 year old. And she's like, why is he following me? Why is he spraying my, my son's? Like, why is he spraying him? <laughs> He's like fighting for the position in the, in the chain of command. Anyway, rabbits are awesome. They're, they're probably the, the best pet we've ever had. He's so easy to manage. And even when he poops, which is a lot, um, it's it, it's easy to clean up. But anyway, that's not about the Lord's Supper. I'm sorry. It's been a long, long answer to a, a good long question. That question is purely the, theoretical, Caleb says, because the disciples had all hope and faith at that time, but still made me wonder what would have happened. You can't. You can't wonder what would have happened if it didn't happen, and it's just you making up an idea. I mean, if you really want to ask Jesus on the last day, you can, and he might He might answer, but he's probably going to be like, dude, look where you are. <laughs> what, are you, what are you wasting time with that for? Uh, so, uh, final question. Uh, uh, whether we as a church are justified in holding back confirmation classes and communion until children are later in elementary years to young high school years, well, not on principle. Why would we be, why on principle we would set an age for anything when the Bible has not done so? So no, we're not on principle. Although you're right, in practice we have been. It's kind of weird. Many churches are not, and there's a lot of conversation about, eh, you know, maybe maybe waiting until they've stopped believing is too long. (laughs) Maybe we should try before we completely lose them. Uh, so, you know, there is that. Uh, we as a church know that whoever does partake of the sacrament without knowing what a gift it is drinks judgment on themselves. I'm not convinced that's as immediate as you say. I think that's a communal reality, that a congregation that does not drink with discernment and deal with the pastoral care of its people and their unbelief will eventually drink the truth of the gospel right out from underneath them. And of course that happens individually. It's not as though people die at the altar usually, right? Like that, that I, it hasn't happened. And I've got hypocrites that commune. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, I'm not going to tell you who. And I might be wrong. But the point is, I know it. I confess it. It's Augsburg 8, right? So if you get mad at me, Augsburg 8, there's hypocrites in my congregation. There always are. They don't believe at all. Well, they're not dying. Because it's about the communion of the whole of the whole group. And again, um, you're right, though. When the group does not discern what's going on, like, all your youth are dying because they're disconnected from Jesus, but you won't let them have any. 
right? Like, oh, maybe this is a bad idea in the current world, right? Maybe we're in a different type of warfare and a tactic is not a principle, right? So I mean, maybe once the, the game starts, you got to change your plan a little bit because that's what coaching does, right? Uh, <clears throat> so as far as you can tell, Euphrasia said that the only thing necessary for community is the recognition that it is, in fact, Christ's body and blood shed for our forgiveness. Uh Normally, no. See, we would normally ask you, do you believe the Ten Commandments are true? Do you believe the Creed is true? I'm going kind of fast here. You know, do you pray the Lord's Prayer? Like, ever. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, do you believe your baptism is valid yeah, and saves you? Uh, do you believe I represent Jesus in hosting you at this thing? Um, and, and is this Jesus, and is this Jesus for you for forgiveness? Like, like that... That core, we call that the small catechism, um, it, it, that's what we need you to know, right? And, like, there's a lot of other stuff that's connected to that. Like, I'm not kidding you. There, is, there, are, there are ways that the truth of something that you think doesn't mean much, it's a small little thing. Oh, what's that? That you track that thing through a couple generations of growth, and you can see what a disastrous error that is because it has dismissed what Scripture has said. Right? So um, you want to build on what's clear, you want to build on what's clear, not on what's unclear. And there's plenty of unclear things in Scripture. They're there to support what's clear. They're not there to increase our, our lack of clarity and our chaos. Um, so uh, so I, I would say there's more than what you say here. You really want a little more than that to understand what the Lord's Supper is because you know, you, I would want that generally for baptism. So you're going to be baptized with the understanding I just talked about. Now that you're baptized, you hold to that still. You remember it throughout the liturgy leading up to the supper. That's what the liturgy is there for, is to bring you back through those that small catechism again, ultimately, uh, into, even praying the Lord's Prayer, right, into having the supper itself. So, um, are we as the LCMS Church going to have to go before God and account for why we waited to administer in this? No. The LCMS, as an organization, God, I hate to break it to everybody. I mean, he's not really, he doesn't pull for your football team, or the other guy's football team. Or any in particular guy on the field with regard to the score, other than that, as it relates to the utter salvation of the elect, right? So, so to think that the LCMS Inc. as an organization, which I have nothing against particularly at this moment, but do you think it has some sort of like particular holy vestige in God's sight that it's over, overly going to be held accountable as a thing? Like it doesn't exist as a thing. Who are you going to talk about? Who's it, what, you're going to just put the Constitution up and send it to hell, right? Like, like there's a bunch of people involved in this, and they're diverse. There's good people. There's bad people. There's lazy people. There's hardworking people. There's funny people. There's mean people. There's all sorts of people. Are those of us who are in communion with the LCMS going to go before God and account for why we waited to administer this life? And gift to strengthening children until they could recite the Ten Commandments, Creed, Lord's Prayer, understand baptism, and find Lord's Supper. Um, well, yeah, I think your question is, is anybody going to go before God and answer anything? The answer is yes. Um, I, I don't think that means waiting until you're like 14 to do that. I mean, it, it, so so who are you talking about? Like we just – this last year we've confirmed everybody who's over I think like 12. You know, and the ones that are at 10 and 11, they're like, they're gearing up to go, you know? So, um, cause they're, you know, but they're not, they're not quite into it either. They're, and when they want it, they're going to want it. And then we're going to teach them. So what we've done here, COVID did this to us, but I'm just going to grab on with both hands. I mean, you don't want to let an accidental good thing get put back wrong, <laughs> right? Uh, so, so since we ended up, um, uh, we thought everyone was going to die, frankly, you know, community, community, a bunch of these kids that maybe had a year of confirmation left, um, since they are now confirmed and we don't have to really play that game, 
my plan is to have confirmation be when they're ready for it. So if, if you want to start confirmation, let's go, right? And and all these kids over the next couple of years, as they go from age 10 to age 15 or age 8 to age 15, like that'll just kind of happen. Um, and so so who are you asking? You know, are we liable? We're all liable all the time for all that we do. That's what this book is about. That's why it's worth reading. Right? That's why it's worth thinking about how most of our life is not spent thinking about how to talk about Jesus. Most of our life as Americans is spent thinking about how to do what I want more. And since we, in theory, pray against that all the time, it's a good idea. It's a good idea to slow down a bit on it, right? Um, to to reponder what we believe we stand for, and to hold to it with conviction. So, in that sense, yes, your your question are our congregations of the LCMS and members of the LCMS. That is, people who consider themselves conservative, Bible believing Lutherans in America right now, and are not in the wells in the ELS, right? Do we have a reckoning in front of us going on like right now? Like, are we watching uh, a stripping away, a culling, uh, a, a a a dead limb falling off? Yeah. What is that? It's a bunch of different stuff. And it's not just the LCMS. It's the whole country, which has rejected the idea of a God at all as a country. There's some of us here still praying, but there's a lot who are not. Or they're praying to other gods, right? So so as goes your community, so go you. I mean, this is the lesson of Jeremiah 29. Uh, so we got to see it for the reckoning that it is. We got to see that the last 50 years stole our future from us as a generation of people, the LCMS. Uh, we don't have a generation and a half of people because of abortion and birth control. And uh, as a result, we, we didn't even keep the ones we got. And all our institutions are too big for what we want them for. That means they're too expensive for the people who have them. So we have all these things that are just coming. And none of them really matter as things. What matters is the people and the lives, the consciences that are tied up in trying to decide whether the church needs these things or not, right? And now we, you know, the more, the question that is most concerning is, so what would the LCMS do, like in convention, in two years or whenever we next decide to meet? Like, like what would we do about this? We'd argue about it. We'd pass a law that nobody really agreed with or a statement no one really agreed with because we all debated about it. We stripped it down and we have a very vanilla, like communion's good. We should study it, right? That's the best the LCMS is going to do. What you want, my son, my friend, what you want is for your brothers and sisters around you to know the value of the Lord's Supper, that's what you want. What you want is for your brothers and sisters around you to know, uh, you want to talk them into confidence in their Christianity. So I suggest to you, worry less about the LCMS and more about what your pastor needs you to do in your local congregation beyond reading this book and telling him all the best parts of it. Ignore the bad parts, the boring parts, if that's there, just cross it out and then tell him the good parts and uh, do that for him. And hopefully the help for the rest of my questions will be with you. But I tell you, man, if you can't pray the Lord's Prayer, you probably should not be having the supper. Now, if you want to really debate the pedo communion issue, that is, should a, should a uh, an infant who cannot speak or reason yet have the Lord's Supper, I'm going to leave that for people who would like to argue for no good reason and split the church for no good reason at a time when we're already divided. <laughs> it's just, it's just like, you know, when we're down and disunited, let's not divide further over an issue that we can't find a real evident and clear answer to in scripture, um, uh, regardless of how cleverly you might be able to defend it, right? Uh, and and I'm, I'm not saying you can't, but, but uh, we're at a time when we need to get to fundamentals, 
and unity. And you start communing babies, you're not creating unity. You're going you're gonna to freak out a bunch of faithful people and divide the church. So I've seen it happen already. Uh, so uh, it's just kind of what happens. All right. Um, I am going to take a one minute break. I'm going to eat a little bit of food and I'm going to come right back. Can I do it from here? Can I do it from here? Can I do it from here? I'm coming right back. More of your questions as we set our I saw a super chat go flying by once upon a time in the sky. It was from Darth Mick. He says this. Um, uh, there are articles by LCMC Legends that point out that we would inevitably get here. Uh, this is marriage, not communion. Uh, so pedo sex, gay marriage, broken family, etc. Written way back when they debated no-fault divorce. They were right. That's right. That's exactly right. Uh, this has been called a slippery slope from the beginning. Uh, you could probably even push it back to women's suffrage if you really wanted to, although that only happened as a result of a, a further disbelief in the father, right? What's been going on is a disbelief in the father and as a result of disbelief in the family. And over time, when you remove the fatherhood of the nation, say king is even something that's respectably looked at. Um, and yeah, I guess I'm a monarchist at this point. Um, Although I plan to remain an American citizen the rest of my life, uh, <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't trust kings just because I believe that they were built to, to exist. We just need to understand that the role of the leader, even if you call him president, is effectively a king of some kind. Uh, that you need a father of the people, and you must see him as a father of the people. And frankly, only a man can do this job, because if a woman does this job, she'll be looking to a man to help her, and he'll be the de facto, right? And so you don't want that. You want the person at the top to actually be held accountable for what they're doing. And uh, for that reason, you know, patriarchy is something I think is better than most people who use the word to mean really awful things think it is, because they've taken the word and meant a bunch of different stuff, blah, 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 blah. You're right, though. The destruction of patriarchy has led to all the things we see happening with the random dis non existence of sex, sex in the most hypersexualized place we've ever seen. I mean, cuties. Cuties? Netflix? Anybody? I did cancel Netflix. It was a month ago. I just grew so tired of it. As much as I liked Marvel movies, I've just, I've turned off movies forever. Not forever. Not forever. For like forever for a little while. <laughs> I'm doing like a purge on, on my movie consumption. It'll come back. But, but not like it. Oof. Not like it was. And not Netflix style. I may just, you know, and for whatever, eight bucks a month, nine bucks a month, that's fine. Whatever. Christians can do this. But I was just so tired of the propaganda, so tired of of the stories getting further and further into, like, every time I turn on, I got to go past stuff. My kids are like, what is this? Like, they're frustrated by it. And now this this, uh, this, uh, documentary called Cuties uh, came out, which is about a post-Islamic young girl in France who hooks up with a twerking culture, 10-year-olds, uh, and and then learns to hypersexualize herself as she reacts against uh, the polygamy of her family, which is allowed, I guess, in, in France. Um, and uh, it's followed by a woman who grew up in a similar lifestyle, and as a, as, as a director, you know, the director is trying to say this is bad, and yet I'm just relying on Ben Shapiro at this point. Uh, it, it may not, it may cross a line that should not may. It crosses a line that shouldn't be crossed in terms of what it shows because the woman making the film couldn't possibly imagine how men who are debased would find this and use it uh, for perversions, right, for themselves. And then, and then Netflix went and popularized it that very way by making their their picture of it that they have show up on your screen precisely uh, that kind of imagery. Um, and, and again, your point here, Darth Make, is like, like, why are we surprised that the pagans do this? The Bible says the pagans do this anyway. Like, you just know this is what they default to. And now we're watching it in real time happen. And it's by removal of the father as the ultimate reality, right? It's the all father, the father of us all in Jesus Christ. Um, and, and so, uh, 
the theologians of Christianity who believed this years ago said this is what's going to happen to the culture, and then here it is. Um, I feel like I had one, one other thing I wanted to say about this. So, Oh, I remember this so vividly. Let's see, when was this? This was 2012, maybe? It was 2020, right? It was 2012, maybe 2013, 2014. Naperville, Illinois, Bethany Lutheran School, 7th and 8th grade class, talking about abortion. Oh, 5th grade class, too. Talking about abortion. Talking about the Sixth Commandment. It was the 8th grade class where I mentioned that there would be other things coming soon that were sexually disturbing. And uh, uh, fifth grade class, that was just about how abortion works. And I was, uh, I was called into the office, as it were. We had this massive powwow uh, with uh, people from another parish who sent their kids to the school who didn't want the information about abortion that I was sharing, shared. Um, I was told in that meeting it was wrong that the, the person who professed to be a medical professional, in fact, was wrong. I went and did my research again afterwards. The, the person was very wrong. And but uh, I was uh, I was kind and allowed them to claim right in that moment because I didn't know any better than to you know I, mean, I knew it but I didn't have it like footnoted at the moment. Um, uh, but then also I mean the the claim was that you cannot teach kids that that there is a perverse sexuality out there when they're not ready for it. And this is eighth graders, right? I'm not supposed to tell the eighth graders what's going to happen next year at the public high school, really, right? Um, this was a Christian school, and it wasn't. It was interesting. It, it was Christians, largely not parents. Of uh, not not members of this of the actual church, but of of another church, and does it matter in some sort of way? Like personally, no, it doesn't matter. What matters is that I remember just a couple of years ago being told that what we're seeing right now is impossible by Christians who didn't want me to warn anybody about it. So you're right; they were calling this out a long time ago. And if you know your scriptures, you can call this out every time that the hierarchy of the fourth commandment is rejected. It's going to do this. This is the only thing it can do. Irrationality and evil destroys itself. So um, don't be surprised by it. Christians especially. And certainly don't hook your bandwagon up to it uh, like, like a complete, well, ignorant fool is what the Bible would call you at that point in the day. Let's see here. Revelation for kids. I always want to cover my own face. Look at that. Christopher says this. I've been curious since watching your revelation in an hour video, if you have, wow, wow, I forgot about that one. If you have any advice for addressing both the book of Revelation generally and specifically Kiliasm with children. Uh, For context, I teach fifth grade religion as one of the classes at a Lutheran school and I've had a mix of Lutherans, non-Lutherans, etc. I I have some non-Denon Baptists, spend a lot of time in Revelation, will every once in a blue moon make a Kiliastic statement or statements about when the end will happen, and at 10 and 11 years old, we'll honestly not know that other Christians don't teach Kiliasm. Again, Kiliasm, the, the thousand-year physical reign of Christ on earth after he returns before judgment, right? It's it's a weird idea. Our confessions call it a Jewish myth because it, it is, and for Christians to believe it is for them to kind of miss a couple of really important things. I mean, you're still a Christian, but you're going to be all all hyped up about the wrong stuff and kind of miss the right stuff on on some of these issues of you know how to read your world. Um, but uh, in any case, um, the main thing is that when I occasionally it comes up, I don't want to leave the topic completely unaddressed or for the sake of the other students in the class. Uh, I'm not unprepared to address the topic and I'm at a congregation where they want me to teach Lutheran doctrine, but how to do so in a simple manner and to meet my students where they're uh, at has been on my mind. Peace of Christ be with you. Okay, let me suggest first off that if you're going to teach against the doctrine that someone else is taught by their parents or their pastor at their church, you're not going to do it in a group. 
You're not going to do it at least intentionally, right? You can, you can leave out the teaching of what we believe and show the teaching of what they believe compared to it. But if you really want to do what you said here, uh, which is to address it for their sake, right? In a simple manner to meet their needs, you, you know, your students are all in different places, right? So, so you're going to have to have a more direct conversation at a certain point. Um, and I think, I think that's very, very important. Let me, um, let me shift here for one second. This is going to take me half a moment to get us a piece of paper to work with. I just got to remember, is it this one? Nope, not that one. Let's try that one. There we go. Oh, I forgot about my coffee. Hello, coffee. Come back to me. There's coffee. How cool was that shot? Action! Action! Right here on the morning show. Alright. So here's the thing. Uh, Is this going to work? We'll see. The thing that I would do is I would try to show them how there is a timeline... Of history. How's that look? It's not too bad. And that our Lord, we all believe he went up, right? He's king now. That's his really interesting crown up there. Okay. And that at some point he's going to come back and end the world. And the question is, what happens here and what happens here, right? That's, that's where we argue. Like, is there... Is there other stuff between now and not yet? Right? That's That seems to me to be the really important question. Is there other stuff? So does it change after he returns into something else? And now does it change into something else before he returns? I'm going to suggest that the Lutheran position classically, that is, believing what the Bible says, means there is no such thing as any thing in the middle, right? But now your Kiliastic children believe that there is a thousand-year reign sitting right here, right? Um, Now, they may decide that that actually sits over here, and then they have two on this side, and they consider his return something different. Um, But in either case, the point is still the same. They also believe in some other hyper-persecution, right? Which they think is the rapture. Right, And so they think that's going to happen here. And then there's some other thing that goes on here, but no one really knows what they're talking about. They're all in disagreement. Like they have a a, a vague idea. And then it's whatever they heard most recently is what they think. Whatever Bible prophecy from the Old Testament they heard most recently, that's what they're thinking about. Right. Regardless of what it actually means, (laughs) which is the sad thing. All right. But so, so what you have to do now is help them see how first we're all on the same timeline here. Right. Like this is this is the thing. We really need to build unity before we build disagreement. We want to build unity underneath the disagreement so when we find the disagreement, we can back up, find the foundation, and move forward to what we agree about, right? Uh, sorry, move forward based on what we agree about into further agreement. So first you have to get to this point where we at least are going to acknowledge like Jesus did something over here, right? And now until he gets back, what are we doing? Are we waiting for some other thing? And then my question to them is what's that? Because if that's one thing in 1885 and a different thing in 1942 and a different thing in whatever, you know, all the way through history, then I'm going to suggest that maybe you should rethink that, right? Just keep it real simple math. 
What's this thing you're waiting for that's not Jesus coming back? For them, it's the rapture, but it's not. There's something that happens before the rapture. What's that? What's that? What's that? What's that? What's that? What's that? Wow. Where's the scriptures in all this, right? That's the other thing I would say. And then I'd go back to my position. I'd be like, okay, well, here's my position. My position is this, that there's no middle, there's only the end, and that no man knows the day or the hour, and we're just supposed to wait as if every day could be the day. It's kind of cool. Like, it gets rid of all that, and I can just believe the Bible's true every day. It's never going to get worse. Other than that, it's always getting worse and getting better because nations rise and fall. But it's never going to get so worse that it's like, oh my gosh, we're really at the end. No, we're always really at the end. And, and then it's, it, it's not going to be like a better that then isn't really better. And then there's another rebellion. And But why, why on earth? When Jesus comes back, he's going he's gonna to win. He already did win. He's just going to come back and show it to us. So I would, I would really demonstrate just my position over and over again. And then at a certain point, I would just, with my position being the thing, I wouldn't go off on Kileism all the time. I wouldn't talk about Kileism all the time. I would demonstrate my position. No one knows the day or the hour. He's coming back. That's all we're waiting for. And I would, I would always say, and remember, that means that there is not a thousand-year reign of Christ on either side of his return, um, uh, or at least that's what we believe. And I would just leave it at that. I would just keep saying that over and over again. I would not worry about convincing them. They just need to know that there, you believe something completely different. And then you talk as if that's what you believe. They're children. They're going to follow you. If, if, if it's truth in the, sh- in the voice of the shepherd, they're going to learn and believe it. And they'll actually start to ask questions like, wow, so where, which signs are we? Uh, there's so many pin the tail on the, what the? Ah, you know, and you end up with like the, the, the Bible code garbage going on. So in any case, right? Are you with me on that one? Let's see here. We can go back just like this for a second. All right. So uh, hopefully that helps there. I sure really wanted to get here, right? Here? Nope, 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 nope. There. There we go. So hopefully that really helped a little bit. Maybe not really helped. Uh, my book, Echo, right here, uh, has that timeline concept as a way to unpackage the entire basics of the Christian faith as art on your whiteboard. Um, you cannot at this time buy the art from CPH, but I actually would argue that you shouldn't anyway. You should just draw yourself with stick figures. That's what I do. And that timeline can expand and become a symbolic tool for understanding a lot of other stuff. It can become code language for teaching, uh, especially a classroom where you've got them every day. Week to week to week, it's a little tougher to pick them up um, because they don't retain things week to week to week in our current educational system, which that's a whole different topic, but it is true. Um, you got to keep hitting them, otherwise they forget it. So, uh, Stephen says this, and it's going to get small texted. Oh my goodness. A friend of mine is a youth pastor with an evangelical free church. That could be fun. That could be not fun. Uh, we, re- we frequently meet so he can bounce ideas off me about lesson plans for his group. Cool. Currently, he's planning on working through the armor of God. Awesome text. As we were talking about different aspects of the armor, Ephesians 6, by the way, right? Uh, we had a difference of opinion in regards to the breastplate of righteousness. My view is the breastplate. Uh, it refers to the Coram Deo righteousness won by Jesus on the cross that we are putting on, correlating to put on with the meaning St. Paul uses in other epistles. The righteousness then protects us against the, uh, the attacks of the devil. The, sh- the righteousness Coram Mundo, that is a human action, right? Good works. If St. Paul was even thinking of it when he wrote this, is only as a result of the righteousness Coram Deo and is to serve our neighbor and strengthen our conscience. Uh, my friend, however, thinks the breastplate of righteousness refers to us putting on the righteous acts and being imitators of God. Isaiah 59, that is the breastplate refers to right action because why we put on something that we already have. Why put on something we already have? Quotation, his words. Um, why put on something we already have is actually a really dumb question. I'm, all, I'm kind of on his side a little bit until that question. Uh, if, if you have a thousand, a million dollar golden chain around your neck and you found another million dollar golden chain, would you put it on or just say, I already got one? 
because it's just nonsense. It's not a wise statement, right? If you're going to use that as your like as your as your proverb for life, this is why proverbs in the Bible are so good. Okay, so a proverb, a colloquialism, a saying, it sounds wise no matter what, and you can always apply it to something no matter what. But does it apply to everything? That's the question. Slogans fly around, and you grab it. Oh, well, this is just a quick saying. It means it sums stuff up. But how tested is it? Proverbs has been tested. In any case, <clears throat> I, I highly recommend the book of Proverbs. Did you know that? Uh, so, 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 why I put on something we already have? Because it's worth putting on more. I mean, it's really an obvious answer to that one. But, but, but the argument. I mean, I, I'm not trying to solve the solution with a, with a one up here because I think the argument is worth having. Um, he, he's been through seminary, so I usually respect his opinion. But I can't help but think he's off the mark here, maybe I am. But I know I have a bias, so I would like an outside opinion. Good confirmation bias. Um, so you go to a, a source to confirm what you already think, right? Which is what we do. Um, uh, yours in Christ. Hopefully you're coming to me because you know that I'll tell you what you're wrong about, even if I am going to hurt your feelings a little bit on the internet by doing so. So th- thanks for coming to me for that reason. Yeah. Yours in Christ, uh, Stephen. Uh, I just picked up Without Flesh, by the way. I've been uh, trying my hand at Smart Notes. Yay. Uh, as I read it, I don't know if I'm, there is no 100% correct Smart Notes. There's 80% correct Smart Notes. It's always 80% correct. And that's all you really need. So just keep learning your own brain's way of learning and it'll, it'll make sense. Just keep going. Uh, but what I'm doing has been helping me. Yes, it has. It will engage with the book better. Yes, yes, yes. A great read so far. All right. So is the breastplate of righteousness in the armor of God the objective righteousness of your justification before God by grace through faith alone? Declared to you to be believed alone, but truly outside of you and imputed to you, you benefit without actually doing it? Or is it the subjective justification, the experience of what it means to be a just man who trusts God because he's God? Even a God who would justify the ungodly and to place such suffering trust in his hands in real and present time. Now, the Bible teaches both these things are true. So if you're in an argument in which you're trying to say that, like, we don't need one or the other, then there's your answer, right? And that's the problem is you're having that argument in this text for no good reason. Like, the Bible teaches both of those kinds of righteousness. Why would the breastplate of righteousness only be one of them? It... it, you follow me on this? It's kind of funny, don't you think? I mean, it's like it's like I, I mean, I've heard, I've heard good people say this too. Like so, so like the helmet of salvation is salvation. So then the breastplate of righteousness is your good works, right? Because you already have salvation in the helmet, and, and so you need this other thing. Well, so so my salvation can exist apart from my good works. I'm not talking about like my good works make my salvation happen, but can I be saved unto no good works? Is that possible? I don't think it is. I think salvation is, in fact, being saved into good works, and that is the salvation. So so to divide these things is just it's nonsensical. What it is is old arguments from people who were not Christians arguing against Christianity and then language that Christians adopted because they believed these false teachers has come down to us and created arguments about things that we don't really disagree with. Are about. It is a matter of emphasis. You can truly confuse law and gospel, and I would say that many traditions do, but that doesn't mean that we aren't all working with the same playbook on the bottom. It's just a matter of how much you're listening to it, how much you're smart noting the Bible instead of my book, you know, smart noting Proverbs and smart noting the gospel. You smart note the gospel of John and see if you come out a sacramentarian on the other side. <laughs> see what happens. Something tells me it won't happen. Uh, yeah. So, so, um, I would contend that the armor of God is a preaching mechanism. It is for proclaiming all the truths that it carries. And the main one is that you can't die now. That's the main one, right? Like no matter where you are, you have the solution. 
And you want to talk about what no one pays enough attention to in that? I mean, the shield, the sword, I mean, they're all great things, but the feet wear something called readiness. Readiness. And with your feet adorned by the readiness that comes from the gospel, the good news of peace, that's not how you feel, that's the fact that Jesus is risen. <sighs> uh, readiness on your feet. Why don't we argue about what that means for a while? Try to do it. Try to, uh, oh, it's way over here now. Try to talk him into it, huh? On that note, bump. no, that's not what I wanted. I'll learn someday. We're going to do a little talk a minute of it right now. So last week we had to do it digitally. I finally got my new paper copy, which is, oh, look at that. It's like, it's like forever down there. Oh, forever. The, um, this is the one where I say, you know, you should take smart notes in general. That's just in general and forever, but it'll help you with this book too. Uh, before we dig into it, let me just say, having read through it, I think I'm really glad it's out. I already want to improve it. So that's just me. You should know that by now. I mean, everything I'm doing, I'm always changing it, right? It's kind of annoying, but it's kind of why it's fun. Uh, so, you know, you get what you get. Um, the book is probably going to change in the next year and come out again. But for now, the con- the content, uh, when you can pile through my meager saying, because the problem is usually, the problem is not the content. The problem is I just didn't say it as clearly as it could be said. So as I'm reading it through, I'm like, oh, that could be said so much better, right? So, well, yeah, that's what happens. A fourth draft, a fifth draft, a seventh draft, a 25th draft. Like, you can do that. You know, I, I applied 80-20 to this one, too. I did 80% of the work, and I published it, right? So uh, if there's another 5% of work that gets done over this next year while I teach it, there will be a new edition that comes out. In the meantime, it's going to be what it is. But just expect to see a lot of, like, red on my... Eh, my page, well, where? Hold on, let me just show you. Yeah, there you go. There's some red, right? There's, there. oh, it looks like that wasn't so bad, but there's pages where I'm like, this is not good. There we go. There's one of them. <laughs> so it's not that it's not good. It just could be said better. But last week we talked about how it's not hard. That is, it's not complex to talk to people about Jesus. You don't need expertise. What you do need a little bit of grit, though. You got to believe what you believe. Yeah, it takes some patience. Uh, you're going to be dealing with people who don't like you. They're hostile to you. Right, but as you're since you're a Christian, you believe it's the most important thing in the world is to talk to other people about Jesus. Well, then you're going to do whatever you can to help them. So that's what this is. It's a how-to book. Now, as a how-to book, it's not going to turn the page and go right into bullet points. It's going to make you think because until you think, you're not going to be able to help other people think. Right. So part of this book is a contemplation book to get you talked into thinking about your own faith yourself. That's the scuttlebutt underneath it, or the, the you know the torpedo going underneath it. So yes, we're in chapter yes. This is on page four. If you want to look at it with me. Uh, you can talk people into being Christians. This is very important. Lutherans, don't don't get all freaked out, right? I'm not talking about synergism. I'm not talking about how the sinner's prayer and uh, a bullet points checklist will let you seal the deal. I'm telling you that the only way people become Christians, the only way is somebody talks them into it. That is, someone shows up with the words that are about Jesus and says them over and over again in a kind and gentle way that makes sense until someone believes, Right? So, of course, yeah, prayer is important. Absolutely. By the end of this book, you'll be asked to pray. Your regeneration is important, right? The love that we ought to share the world, that's important too. But none of that is any good by itself, right? It just dies with this world. So, as much as our love might prompt the world's inquiry, that is, if we show them we are Christians by our love, or our prayers may bend God's ear to send someone our way that we can talk to, or the Spirit might prepare men's hearts, that is, you know, the law in the world might break men so that you come at the right time to give them the gospel, the fact is no saint of the heights, 
nor sinner of the depths comes to be a Christian without hearing the life, death, and deeds of Jesus of Nazareth, right? So, so it doesn't matter how many prayers are being said for your grandson. If nobody talks to your grandson, then nobody talks to your grandson. You're praying somebody would talk to your grandson. That's what you're doing when you're praying for your grandson to become a Christian. Okay, so who knows your grandson better than anybody else? Yeah, so that's, that's what you got to wrestle with here, right? We'll do one more page uh, here at least. Ah, the age we live in is a white noise monstrosity of shouting and sound bites. We've talked about this morning, slogans, right? People live by slogans. Conversation is rarely about being clear, much less about discovering what is right. Most people just want to win and confirm their own bias. Me too. I'm not most people, all people. This is scientific. If you deny this, you deny science. Science shows us that every single one of us, when we talk, wants to confirm our own bias and keep ideas we don't like as far away as possible. The only way around this is logic. Yeah, it really is. And smart noting, by the way, helps with that. Uh, rather, uh, it's a game that we live in, though, a game of winning and showing one-upsmanship. One up but we are not free then to, re- to fail to redeem the time. Just because nobody's listening right now doesn't mean we're allowed to not listen. <laughs> you know, we ourselves must be interested in truth being true. I mean, how... I tweeted this week a little, or maybe it was Instagrammed, uh, a little... Uh, you know, one of these poem things I do sometimes on Instagram. And it was like, it's a riddle for me as a pastor. Like, so when someone comes up to you and says, pastor, you can't preach longer than this amount of time. It's a riddle to me. I have no idea how to answer that because the only logical conclusion to that is that someone, whether they intend to or not, is saying that God needs to go away sooner. What do you do with that? At the very least, we must ourselves be interested in truth being true. For if truth is otherwise only in the eye of the beholder, then so also is the ability to authentically share a sunset. That is, if you don't believe in truth, then what are you doing pretending things are pretty? You're nonsensical on that point. Um, We'll get more into that idea later in the book. Uh, But as we shall see, it is not only the reasons the unbeliever gives against believing that he must be explored. And that's just it. So most people will say, here's the reason I don't believe, but they're lying. That's not why they don't believe. They have other reasons that they don't want to tell you. It's just like every other argument you have with anybody. You're saying things that aren't the main thing because you're heard about some other thing, and they're also doing the same thing, right? And all our reasons are just excuses for our emotions. Again, that's what confirmation by science tells us, and that's what uh, a direct application of math and reason that is just writing, actually, uh, to your life can really help you work your way around. Um, and of course, if you're going to do that with the Word of God is what you're writing, it's going to get even better. Uh, but uh, more importantly, the one false religion which lurks beneath his many pompously wiki-parroted flesh-slathering excuses, that's what you're going to be exploring. So he has these reasons. Oh, well, the monks wrote this blah, 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 and then it's all mythology. Okay, well, yes, yeah. His reasons, like not even science. But so you can undo the science. You're going to do the history of the nonsense. It's not going to change his mind. He'll come up with some other reason, right? So what you really want to do is be more patient and find out what he believes, not why he doesn't believe you, what he believes. What is his wiki-parroted, flesh-slathering excuse of a religion? Why don't you let him test his own religion rather than think he's here to test yours? And that's what you as a friend want to try to do. Uh, because there is no Christian martial art. It's a martial life. That is, a life that embraces suffering— how would you train in that is what that paragraph's about. I think that one's really important, but we're going to skip it. It's martyrdom. That is, it's willingness to witness and die at the same time. Same word, witness, right? It's not a game. 
the personal testimonies of men? No, it's the words of the living God. It does not have a martial art because it is against the martial life, however. That's what I want to fix. So this that's, that could be read very poorly. The point is here, Christianity is not against a martial life. Christians are not pacifists. We're not barbarians either. You can be a soldier, but a soldier will always prefer to disarm if he is a Christian. He will prefer to preserve, even if it means sacrificing his life, right? So we're not against the martial life, but we've also learned some, there's more than the martial life. And so martial arts generally only see the martial life at a certain point. I guess Buddhism doesn't at a certain point either, but uh, it depends on who you're talking to. Christianity learns freely from the common sense wisdom of all martial arts. So we're, we have no problem with any of that. And, but the point that we really want to learn from martial arts is how to remain focused, how to remain willing to suffer, how to love what we love more than what the pagans love. Because the goal for us is not to kill the opponent like it is for anybody else who gets in a fight. Our goal is to deliver the final word. What we really want is to be able to endure suffering in any conversation with any set of people in order that we could, before they kill us, remind them of Jesus one more time. For the sake of confessing Christ, we do not defend the existence of God any more than a man defends himself to the protestations of an ant. God doesn't need you to defend him. The idea that God needs you to defend him is just ridiculous. Like, really? It is ridiculous. All right. So, uh, the asserted reign of Jesus Christ in His public resurrection from the dead is all that there needs to be. He is the banner. He is the ensign. There he is. Right. The crucified man is the banner of Christianity. And that they ever let us, convince us to take it down, that was folly. Uh, we've been losing ever since. Do not lose this symbol from your life. It is not an idol. It's a focal point for the word of God. It points you back. Oh yeah, that's right. I should read about Jesus. Where's my Bible, right? I'll leave this other fisk stuff behind. Where's my Bible? It's over there by my eggs. So, in my hot dogs. All right. So, <laughs> uh, he, Jesus is the banner, the ensign, not his name only, but also his deeds, not his life only, but also his crucifixion, not his words alone, but most certainly the power of words is what makes this here part of our life together. All right. We are going to probably come back and pick up next week with conflict avoidance is the definition of cowardice. The goal this morning for me was just to get into the book a little bit on a different way to look at it with with you and have to teach out of it. And um, I'm, I'm pleased with what I've found so far. That one sentence, again, I think it just, it's really just how the sentence opens. And on first read, you might think, yeah, what did that mean? I have to go back and read it again. And that's the kind of thing I want to move out of the book over time. As a writer uh, with these other books that I published through CPH, the time and effort, the extra year and a half that goes into a book that we didn't do for this book. I mean, it does get you that next 20% level. Uh, and so that's, that's really there. The question is, in our day and age, should we be spending that much time on everything that that we publish, right? Um, or only on the things that have proven themselves to be worth publishing again, maybe is, is where we should funnel those efforts. That being said, that's just my opinion, of course. Um, uh, we're going to come back and hit another thing here in a moment. First, Arsat Angelfire throws a super chat my way. He says, I'll actually be talking with some students about this aspect of the Armor God tomorrow. Always appreciate your insight. Oh, let's come back to Armor God then for a moment. Mm. What did I want to say about it? There was something. I've got a whole section on it, actually, in a, in a, in a bunch of notes from the book that I wanted to write before Echo. Um, and then I shifted and, and it's just sitting there still. Uh, but I think I, the, the, the thing to do with it is to recognize like earlier there were these questions from, uh, I forget which young man it was about, you know, speculating on what's it like if you have the Lord's Supper between Jesus' death and his resurrection, like what happens? And I said, that's speculation. You don't need that. Right. But now the armor of God is the time for speculation. Not that you would speculate away from 
the fact that both objective and subjective justification are biblical realities, that the subjective and objective righteousness are both true, and that God gives you both of them. They're both by grace alone, through faith alone. But when you do actually get to experience and like, and like, like do, like you trust God now, right, uh, in Jesus, to imagine now that is like some amazing piece of like, well, I see it as like this huge, like glass fire armor of blue liquid awesomeness, right? I'm just, and it makes me look like I'm in a mech, right? Big old shoulders. It's everywhere, right? And of course, my guardian angel standing behind me. I'm like, I'm at his waist and he's there with a sword, right? Sitting right there. Like, do that, man. Like, do all sorts of that with your speculation. That's what the armor of God is for, is to take these ideas that are substantial. My righteousness that Jesus gives me and the James 2 righteousness that my neighbor sees as a result of the righteousness Jesus gives me when I walk out in the world is indeed my neck warrior suit. And I got a shield of faith that I can deflect arrows with. I got a helmet of salvation to put on the top. It's like power armor. And again, the angel of God who walks with me, the ensign of God. I so want to wear this on my shoulder now. My wife thinks I'm nuts. I probably am. I want to make like a, a Velcro thing. I can walk around like in coffee shops like this. I bet you people stare at Jesus. <laughs> Think about it. Uh, that's what this is good for, though. You know, you need one. Uh, you need one. Uh, so what else? What else was there? Uh, the readiness for the gospel for, the, for your feet, right? So, like, think about, you know, it's not haste. It's not being in a hurry. It's the ability to be where you need to be when you need to be there. You can pivot if you have to, right? It's a good first step. It's a good second step. It's a good full stop, jump stop, reverse, all that kind of stuff to go with basketball on it. Not that anyone's watching sports because there are no sports. There's only politics. Um, yada, yada. So, yeah, um, go to town on that, right? Uh, find, if you're going to do like PowerPoint and all this, I, I don't recommend that a lot. I think your own ideas are, are good, but go find images of like armor from like fantasy and sci-fi and be like, well, there it is. You know, that's what you're wearing right now. Just, just imagine it, you know? Um, the Sword of the Spirit, by the way, too. This, and this is, you got to say this. You got to say this. It's like the Proverbs thing, where it's like, God would have wrote a book on wisdom and you're not reading it. You know what that makes you, right? Done. Like, just phew, drop mic, right? Like, they, you want to be nice, but like, it, there's no way to say nicely, you're a fool. And that's what Proverbs says, is that, that there are fools and you are a fool if you don't read Proverbs. It, it doesn't say it like that, but it is what it says, actually. Uh, <laughs> so, so, like... That's kind of cool for Christians to know that, right? So we should share that kind of stuff. Um, and then, so the sword of the spirit. Do you think it's just accidental that the only things that are described in the armor of God that you, in fact, can do something about? Like, put on the breastplate of right? Yeah, okay. So it means know that it's there. But the thing that when it's on you and you're walking around life, right, today, am I going to walk around? I got to put on the breastplate of righteousness. I better put it on. I better put it on. But you know, No, I'm not going to do that. What's in my hands? Again, I got a shield, which is not just defense. It is a weapon. And I got a sword. And if you're going to talk about things that matter, swords are things you don't just pick up and expect to use. If you pick up a sword and you try to use the sword against somebody that has anything, like you could have the sword of the Holy Spirit of God that's like this light-powered, you know, five-foot-long lightsaber, right, that doesn't weigh anything. And you're going to go against some, like, assassin with a knife, and he's going to just destroy you because you've never picked it up before. And so that's the thing. If you want to get into a Bible study about the sword of the spirit, you need to think about the Bible as the singular most important weapon and defense you have. 
And it works this way. It should be coming out of your mouth. And if it's not, you have your sword on the ground or on the shelf. You think it's peacetime and it's not. Remember all this bit about where we live? Look, look, our now, we think our now is what everyone's waiting for the, like, before the end of the world to start happening. Like, the little season of Satan, it's already here. It's always been here all along. It's bad. So stand up, you know? Pick up your sword and start training. And that's what you're doing by watching the show. But you guys go out, you guys say this to these kids. How do you train with your sword? Look, go home tonight, get Ephesians 6 out, and smart note it. I'm going to start calling it T-Notes, because when I do write a book about this, they're going to be called T-Notes. T-E-A. It's an acronym. It stands for Translate, Elaborate, Activate. And if you're worried about what's a smart note, it just means when you take your note, your first note that you wrote, or some other thing you find, what you want to do is try to put it in your own words. Translate it. And when you do that, you'll find you probably could say more. Feel free to. That's elaborating it. And you might find it so useful you want to share it. That's activating it. You give it to somebody else. That's how all work happens in life, whether it's on the internet, whether it's on a piece of paper. Pieces of paper make it faster, honestly, uh, to learn in this manner and to share and grow in this manner. So again, go home, take Ephesians 6, take verse 1, read it. Write it, but not as a quote. Write it as your own idea. Put that down on a piece of paper and you will find some, well, that's actually training with the sword of the spirit. That would be training with the sword of the spirit. Now, you want to get real good? Take that set of notes that you just teed up, you translated and elaborated as a first note right out of scripture, and before you activate it, Take that whole thing you probably will have from, from chapter six. You're going to have maybe 10 notes there, 10 note cards or so. Depends on what kind of paper you're using. Um, now, do it one more time, only don't do everything. Read the whole thing and then just see if you can let something show up on a page apart from these things. Like grab the best ideas and see if they line up into a, a final note of like three to five sentences that you just write a note to yourself about what the armor of God means. And you will be profoundly amazed at what comes out of your head and your mouth and your hand. And then you want to really see the power, throw it away, rip it up. It doesn't even matter. The word of God is in you and you have trained with your sword and it will over time make a significant difference in your conversation. So that's that's what you want to get these kids to do, as opposed to just, hey, we just had our spiritual entertainment for the week. We're Christians. Now let's go back to being hedonists. Yeah? I mean, yeah? You got you to gotta have an impact uh, at some point. All right. It's 10 o'clock. We got about half an hour left here. I know we have... Let's see. Whoa. Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. No one needs that. No one needs that. <laughs> Camera. Oh, for pity's sakes. Um... <laughs> Sorry, everybody. That was highly embarrassing. Uh, the um, uh, I know I have another question here uh, that I want to make sure. I got a couple of them. But I also wanted to talk about one other thing before we're done. Uh, Judith says this. Uh, if viewing violent video TV shows produces catatonia rather than violence, is there a danger that focusing on the death of Christ could produce the same reaction? I do not think focusing on the death of Christ can possibly, possibly produce catatonia. I'm not sure that viewing violent TV shows produces catatonia. Viewing TV produces catatonia. Uh, you know, it's, it is a drug that dopes your eyeballs into your brain. And so you sit there and you watch it, right? It, it really does that. Dopamine is, is part of what's going on. Um, and it does engender a, a more, what, uh, uh, apathetic physical performance for that time period, usually. I mean, you can combine it with, like, workouts and stuff, but most people don't. Some do. Um, so could focusing on the death of Christ have the same effect as TV? I really don't think so. I mean, it's a really interesting question. I, I, I must be missing something that you're connecting here. And so I'd really, I would invite you to send it back again if you're not happy with my answer. Um, because I, I think I'm missing something here. But I would say that focusing on the death of Christ by itself is never by itself. Like, like the point of the crucifix in my life is that it's near my Bible. 
And what it serves most often is for me to remember what I read in my Bible that day when I'm walking around so that I know what I didn't forget and remembered again, right? And it, it and it's always going to be about him dying for me and not about me doing something for him. So however you look at it, like that's that's the point of it. I mean, I'm not going to focus on this and not see you. If I'm doing that, I am doing it wrong. I don't know how you would do that because you can't just look at a piece of wood and remember it's Jesus without the words of God telling you it's Jesus. And why would you not listen to those words when they say, go read more words about Jesus, right? Go hear more words about Jesus. So, so I, I think I may be missing your question, but um, hopefully, hopefully that was enough of an answer. Um, Brian says this, the past six months have obviously been hard on most. Yeah. And no different for you. Yeah. Uh, I have always struggled with doubts about my faith. And when I come to Lutheranism about 18 months ago, I thought those doubts may finally subside a bit with the sacraments. Well, they probably have in ways you don't realize. And what you're wanting them to do, however, they won't. So you have to rethink what you mean by doubt a little bit here. Put it in a different category. Let's see if I can help with that, right? Okay, so uh, while they did for a while, that is you had an inertia of upward excitement from something new. Uh, most new Christians experience this on some level every time they convert. That's why they get in the reconversion habit over and over again is broken broken details. Um, uh, that does wear off. This is why getting married because you fell in love with someone a month ago uh, is going to wear off probably, right? A couple of months is all it takes for things to change a lot. And, and the kind of change we've seen now especially is the kind of change that can significantly make a difference. I mean, everybody's depressed right now, right? Uh, so, uh, like, like the, the prescription of, of antidepressant medications, like through the roof since COVID, I didn't go Google that one. I'm sure they haven't buried that one yet. Uh, <laughs> I don't expect to never question my faith ever again on this side of glory. Good. Uh, I also know that we are never promised that we will feel saved. There are times when you do, and there are times when you don't, right? And, and Christ is stronger than our feelings. Yes. Uh, but I can't figure out why Christ would not grant me faith when I ask. Well, he has. You just don't believe him. And that's the problem, right? So your unbelief in your faith being stronger than your experience of unbelief is the problem. Now you have to believe that when you're experiencing unbelief, Jesus is stronger than that too. And when you tell yourself that, here I am, I'm feeling unbelief, but I believe Jesus is stronger than that. That belief is better than the unbelief without that belief. And in that way, your feelings do feel better, but it's not much. (laughs) But it's cumulative. So that talking about the resurrection of Jesus, your being owned by him as a slave of righteousness, uh, to that your life is not your own, that you are regenerated and resurrected, and he's the one pulling you by the nose through this for your own good and everyone around you with a puddle of grace left behind you, the more you say that out loud to yourself in your life, the more you actually believe it. And if you never say it out loud, then you, you just don't know how your brain works and your body works. Your body needs to believe. Your body needs to believe. And it does that by confessing. Right? Your heart and your mind, it's this... Breathe thing and the oxygen feeds us and however all that mystery of life works, I don't know. But your body is not without you and you're not without your body. At least not until you die. We talked about that already this morning too, right? So uh, it's got to be said and it's got to be cumulative. So know that you don't rebuild the framework of your emotions overnight. But you do rebuild the framework of your emotions with the ideas that create emotions. So the idea that the emotion of my doubt and unbelief. I don't even feel God near me right now. I'm so far from it. How could I have ever believed Jesus Christ is stronger than that? Save me from that. Knew that was there and is in fact willing to forgive me for that. He's not surprised at all. That is nothing beside him. Well, those words feel much, much better, don't they? 
It doesn't make it all go away forever. The words have to keep coming. Why would I put on more of what I already have? Did we already talk about that one? Oh, we did. Well, this is why. <laughs> oh, God bless you. I don't. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you have been granted faith. The lie from the devil is that you don't have faith. Don't believe that for a second. Just because you don't feel it. It's nonsense. That's, that's the lie is that you have to feel it. Mystic. It's a mystical lie. Uh, if you read my book, Broken, I do recommend it. Uh, 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 uh. That's the wrong one. Did it wrong again. But this time, it's going to be over here. There you go. There's my book, Broken. It talks about this thing called mysticism, and you're like you're like neck deep in it, right? You're neck deep in mysticism. Uh, that's a different way of looking at things. All right. So, here. There it is. Am I not elect? Yes, you are. Are you baptized? Then you're elect. Do we have to argue about that? Talk to your pastor about that. Your baptism is God saying, I elect you. You may not believe it, but I'm electing you so that you believe it. But it doesn't say elect. It says baptizo. Yeah, that means wash. Okay, so you don't want the word elect. Just, I wash you so that you might believe you are washed. I wash you, not you wash me, not you wash yourself. I wash you. So however you want to do it, right? Right? <laughs> I, I, I rinse water over you to make you clean. You just take away the immersion. Okay, fine. Right? It doesn't matter. I, the point is still there. God has said to you, you're clean. What more do you need? Believe him, not you. There have been many times where thoughts have passed through my head when reciting the creed in the morning and even things like, I don't believe that. Yeah, that's yeah, pretty normal. I mean, me too. It happens. It's, it's random. It's weird. It's like, where'd that come from? But, you know, kill it. That's wrong. It's a lie. The devil is lying. I believe what is true. Say it out loud. Talk to yourself. It's all right. It's all right. You know, the angels, talk to your garden angel. He believes Jesus has risen from the dead. He won't talk back. I promise. He will not talk back. They're not supposed to. So don't talk to him like you're going to get an answer. Talk to him like you need to talk to someone and be like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm, I'm, I'm not alone, right? Like, I'm doing that all the time. I'm not making fun of you. I'm making fun of me. <laughs> but it helps. It helps a great deal. Are you not the elect? Yes, of course you're the elect. Why would you ask the question if you were not? There are many times where thoughts have passed through my head. Oh, yeah, you don't believe that. I push them aside, but then they always return sooner or later. Yeah, they will. I keep worrying that soon I will apostatize or that I'm taking the Lord's, yeah, taking the Lord's supper in an un- unworthy way. Yeah. Um, all I can tell you is that the reason you're worried for this is you're putting way too much weight on your own condition. You just, you've converted to Lutheranism in theory, but now you need to convert in practice. Okay. You got the idea, but you don't have the practice. And the practice is to believe that this is normal. What you are having right now is election. The non-elect don't think this way. They don't, they don't have this problem. They're not concerned about whether they're elect. They're just doing, they're concerned about like placating a God through sacrifice in some way. So they might come to your church and, and say that they come to that church for God, but they're just there to like put their money in the offering plate, do their hour and a half and get out. You know? uh, so, uh, the Christian feels that and says, dear heavens, that's unbelief. <laughs> you know? uh, the word of God within you calls it what it is. And now you just have not had enough time practicing that that's what's being forgiven. That very thing. And so you're like, oh, I don't believe enough. Then the answer is to read your Bible and confess the creed out loud and go to church. Because God says you do. And you're clearly wrong and he's clearly right. And he'll make it good. Trust in the Lord with all your might and lean not on your understanding. Those who trust in Jesus are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved. The scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land allotted to the justified, lest the justified reach out his hand to iniquity. God does not want you to fall away. He is going to provide for you the cross and the tempering you need to see how much you're just relying on yourself right now and to repent of it 
into a practice of relying on him because you're going to always keep relying on yourself and you know that. So you need to build a habit of forcing yourself back into relying on him with external measures. Bodies are very useful for this, by the way, as are communities. (laughs) It's almost like God planned the entire thing from the beginning. Oh, it's called design. Uh, Let's see here. Um, Fighting. Fighting. We did that one. Uh, We're going to go to the high-handed sin. Mm -mm -mm. Lucas. uh, No, we're not. We're going to hang on. Lucas, we're going to have to pull you back next week, I think, uh, because I want to, first off, say, Jedi Knight, Anakin Kundrager, thank you for the super chat. Appreciate that. Uh, The friend described contemporary Christianity as selling woos, like woo-woo-woos, and the music and message have replaced preaching in the gospel with being a woo merchant and selling bigger woos like a drug. Yeah, it's always been about entertainment. It's always been a show. That's what revivalism is. I mean, Finney, did you read Finney? You, you mean you changed the worship style at your church and you never read Finney? Like, he's the guy who thought of it. You just believe, like, the 17th guy, like, like doing things based on him and selling it to you in a package from some big publishing house? Well, that was silly. You don't think? Why don't you think? You're a pastor, right? You should think. Anyway, sorry. I mean, <laughs> if you haven't read Finney and you changed your worship style, you he changed you. And his presuppositions have become yours. So you should you should see them if you want to not have them anymore. You should read Finney. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, you're good. You've caught up to it. Okay. It's a lie and a drug. It's a bait and switch. It's attempting to sell you Christianity by telling you that it feels good. The very thing that our friend a moment ago is struggling with. Um, and yeah, selling woo. The thing is, the thing is, if we're going to talk about woo, as in Tim Ferriss woo, as in a word for describing all the spirituality he doesn't want to think about, because I don't get into the woo. I'm just a materialist and only believes in material things, even though I'm going to go do like transcendental meditation and stuff. You know, that's so weird. Not me. He did. Um, it, transcendental meditation is some weird stuff. Uh, although they are onto some things. They know how creation works better than we do in some ways. And Tim Ferriss listened to them talk about how to calm his spirit, right? Uh, which we should be able to teach. You should be able to teach a non-Christian to calm their spirit by breathing because all you have to do is breathe to calm your spirit. And then when they're like, how do you know that? You're like, well, because God created the breath and it's part of who we are. And we can do this, right? We, we just don't. Um, but we have better woo than even that. So all the woo of the false religion is ultimately first article. So Tim Ferriss doesn't want to deal with the spiritual reality of his breath. He just wants to believe it's a physical reality. There's a spiritual reality going on as well. And you can, as a pagan, understand some of that because it's not always angels and demons. Sometimes it's just life, right? We talked earlier about life in the blood, right? So think about this. Think about the tie of the, the, the word nefesh, breath, wind, spirit, or sometimes soul to your body. Think about what your breath does. What's happening? Oxygen and nitrogen and some carbon dioxide and other things are, are going in. Mostly, mostly nitrogen with some oxygen. What you want is the oxygen, right? So there's the breath, the spirit God put on Adam that is still on you, right? And that, that's from God, nowhere else. And he did it to the animals too. It's a very interesting thing that that comes into you and the oxygen then enters your blood. That, that blood that has life in it, it is the oxygen that goes all over your body and it delivers this oxygen to your body in order to become uh, power, energy, life. And we're like, well, it's just material. I mean, it's just material. What's just material? Have you ever studied chemistry? Is there anything just material down at like the atomic level? What are you talking about? It's just material. So the whole thing is a mystery. And the further south we go that is into the atomic level, the further we can't see. Because it's an abyss out of which creation was made, out of nothing, right? Ex nihilo. And you, you can actually see there's less the further down you go. It's almost like God knows what he's doing. 
we have greater woo. We can take all their woo and re-explain it with an actual framework that is completely consistent start to finish and is the good news of Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And is the Ten Commandments explaining all of nature and how we can just, you know, t- explain their woo as like structure as well. So, um, yeah. But we should not be selling woo. We should just be practicing woo. That's just it. If you're selling woo, you don't got any woo. Like nobody has Kung Fu sells Kung Fu. You don't even talk about Kung Fu. If you really have Kung Fu, like you got you got the fist of this North Star touch of death. You could tell people about that? Why would you tell people about that? You're not going to sell it to anybody. That'd be dumb. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, Ardith, uh, jumping in here too. Uh, thank you for the super chat. Thanks for being here, uh, Rev. Praying for you. Thank you. Today is a big day, so thank you. Uh, love how animated you've been this AM. Um, coffee, I suppose. Uh, no question for me, just in honor of my dad, atheist, and his sudden death 11 years ago today. Well, God bless you, Ardith. Uh, God bless you. All right, so here's what I want to do for our last 15 minutes. And uh, I'm going to take a small break and come back on it. Uh, but I am going to practice a little of the sermon for this week for tomorrow. And that's because it's a different... I've never done this before. I'm, I'm a lot more trying to memorize something. And I think you'll see why. Um, so I just want to, I want to have one go through of these cards before I really have to have to do it this way um, tomorrow or even uh, tonight a little bit, but mainly tomorrow. So we're going to come back and I'm going to just sort of highlight what the sermon will be about and then dovetail into what I hope will be the end of the sermon. Um, and you're just going to get a little bit early here. So, uh, and then we'll be, we'll be checking out at 1030. So hang out for just a moment. It'll say like a three minute break, but it won't be that long. We will be back before you know it. All right. Like I said, we'll be right back. All right. This Sunday is not Holy Cross Day. Holy Cross Day is September 14th. It comes up after this Sunday, but this year at St. Paul in Rockford, we're going to be observing the minor festivals of the church here on the Sundays closest to them, because otherwise you never celebrate these things. And so this Sunday, we're going to be observing the minor feast of Holy Cross Day. The texts are going to be Numbers chapter 21. This is where the people are wandering in the wilderness. They're not quite wandering. They're, they're on their way to wandering in the wilderness. And uh, they are grumbling about the food and the lack of water. And there are some fiery snakes that get sent their way. And then God says, put a snake made of brass on a pole, have everybody look at it, and then they will be saved from the snakes. Now, this connects to John chapter 12 and John chapter 3. John 3 is more clear where Jesus says that he, the Son of Man, must be lifted up like a snake on a pole. And John 12, that language of being lifted up and drawing all men to himself, also returns. And the idea here is that the snake on the pole in the Old Testament is a prototype, a pre-picture of Christ himself on the cross. That is, again, to say and the snake on the pole did not look exactly like this. It was a bad foreshadow. It was, it was a meager foreshadow. It was a mirror dimly of Christ on the cross. This Christ on the cross claiming that when he is put on the cross, first physically, it's not just about the symbol of the cross, but it's that too. The ensign's important. But when he is physically on the cross in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, he is drawing all humanity and all the earth and all creation to himself to go into the grave, to come out of the grave again. That's a pretty important point. It's a good one to found our entire year of pursuing a number of things together every week in the sermons that I give at St. Paul. Uh, We're going to be pursuing not only a life that is based on the theology of the cross— We're going to be exposing the strongholds of the broken mind, which is to say we're going to be taking the high points of my book, Broken, and teaching you how to use them to pinpoint the lies of the devil. But we're also going to teach you how to talk yourself and others through those lies and into Christianity, making use of Talk Them Into It, my other book. So every sermon is going to have pieces of those books kind of dropped into it to hopefully make it uh, a building thing for you discipleship-wise, talking to your friends and neighbors about Jesus-wise, defending your conscience with the Word of God-wise over the course of the year. I'm also going to be teaching you on every sermon how to get better at T-noting, T-E-A, translate, elaborate, activate. We already talked about that this morning. You can call that illumination as 
well, if you want to uh, go with the language of uh, Lumen, the guy who de- uh, developed smart noting initially. Um, it is a life hack system, but we're going to be applying it to your own notes on the Bible. And then I'm going to equip you with the wisdom of Solomon as much as I can every week as part of the sermon. Uh, we want you to be growing as a person, and I'm going to drive us deeper into the Bible itself, whether that be the psalm book, the hymnal, uh, where we, we confess the Bible, and then, of course, the text themselves, like then the other text we have not mentioned for this week, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 to 25. So after Jesus establishes that he is drawing all men to himself like a snake on a pole, which he just looked at it, and you were saved from fiery dragon beasts out of the desert. Now he is saving you from everything, sin, death, the power of the devil. Uh, And this word about his crucifixion, about his cross, that when he is lifted up, all men will be drawn to him. This is what 1 Corinthians 1 tells us the world thinks is folly. We should expect that whenever we say this to an unbeliever, he goes, ha ha, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. We should fully expect that and never expect them to say anything else. And yet we should also fully expect that every time we say it, somebody should say, I believe that. And then we just keep saying it to them. And this is the difference between wisdom and folly. This is the the calling out of the church, out of the the world that's on its way to hell. First Corinthians eighteen to twenty five, which again we'll look at in the sermon more directly, not this morning. Um, we'll talk about that as well. But we're going to tie it to these other items, right? So, starting off our year of doing all of this, the book of Proverbs begins chapter one verses one through seven with a general exhortation to believe that a person becomes not stupid. Because they know what the book of Proverbs says. And it's not that the only place to ever learn this is in the book of Proverbs, but that's the easiest place to learn it. <laughs> uh, and, and then this culminates in what you really want to highlight if you have it in front of you, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The, the most important verse in the first seven verses is the one that it leads to, that the fear of Jesus Christ, the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh, the fear of Joshua, the fear of Jehovah, I don't care how you say it, but Jesus Christ is who is talking about, Jesus is Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, while fools despise wisdom and instruction. That again makes me wonder about that question. When you say, Pastor, the sermon was too long, should I say, did you despise the instruction of God or did I not give any? (laughs) Those are the two options that exist uh, in that reality. So to trust in God, though, you must fear him more than you fear other people. And that's the problem we face today. That's why we're so unwise today is because our fear is not in God, it's it's in men. Now, now, this might seem a bit disjointed this week because we are just laying groundwork, but what would you do with that information normally in church, what I just did? You would just listen, you'd nod your head, you'd say, that's true, and then you just go home with it, right? So what I'm suggesting, what the T-Note system or the Smart Note system, uh, the Illumination system, all suggest is that if you were to have a piece of paper and a pen and simply write down like five words of what I said that would remind you of something, that that would make you smarter. Just like that. Like, it's, it's science. Right? It makes you smarter. Write it down. Smarter. Uh, just Your brain works better after that. You're, you're, you're running the gears well. The oil's in the system, right? You don't. You just sit there and... It actually makes you stupider. It makes you more likely to only believe the last thing you heard. <laughs> Which is what everybody does with the slogans these days. You know? Blah, 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 blah. It's how you can have, how you can have the Democratic National can, Party. Like, Biden. Biden can be accusing Trump of not moving fast enough on COVID. And you can find tweets about Biden telling Trump not to move on COVID from February. <laughs> Like, why, why can he get away with that? Why can any party get away with that? Because no one's thinking longer than like three days because no one's writing anything down. You're just assuming you're remembering. And that's a nonsense idea to think you remember. So first notes help you remember. Teeing those notes up, translate, elaborate, activating them, help you get smarter at remembering 
And the better you do it, the more you're going to do it and get better at doing it. So that, it, with that, what does that mean? Okay, so it means if you want to just do this in a sermon, I just said some stuff about Proverbs, right? I just talked about how the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So you would need a paper and a pen already in your hands. And what would you do? You would hear what I would said, and you heard that something that I said made sense and is not boring. Like that's, that's, you're, you're listening, and hopefully in one sermon that goes 15 minutes, you can find one thing that makes sense and is not boring. And if you can't, either he's really bad or you're not listening. Those are your options, right? So you find something that makes sense, it's not boring, you write it down. That's it. That's a note. You've taken a note. It's a first note. Now, repeat. Keep listening. Do it again. You'll, you'll maybe get... 10. You'll maybe get 500. Depends on how much you want to write down. You don't have to write it all down. Write something down. You can add numbers, arrows, dingles, doodles, do whatever you want all the way around it. That's how you take a basic first note. And then again, later you go back and you tee that thing up. You translate it by looking at it, reading it out loud to yourself, summarizing the idea with new words on a new piece of paper, read what you wrote again, and then sit on it for a little while and see if it isn't kind of something you're glad you have. We can talk about that more as we go as well. But the idea being here again, that when you learn that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and fools despise wisdom and instruction, a fool would not write anything down. And, and a, a wise man would. Straight up. So for this week, when it comes to that, besides just that trusting God and writing about trusting God is the best thing you can do for your life, you can also learn these broken terms about how our minds are enslaved to sin, death, and the devil. And what I'm going to be trying to give you is, is a, you know, get a, a series of languages or terms that you can use as your own slogans to defend your own conscience. They're not really supposed to be for attacking people, right? This is more for attacking the lie when it comes at you. But what we're going to do then is we're going to look at these as like big ideas. I'm not going to go page by page through, through broken. The book's a little too windy for that. It's more of a fun romp. Please buy it, read it. It's, it's a fun romp. But we're going to try to pull the big ideas out. So, so the first idea is that there's only really one lie. There is an original lie. And, oh, I keep doing that. And that original lie is that you must rely on yourself. It's all about you. It's always there. No matter where you go. If they're not preaching Jesus, it it's about you. <laughs> Eventually, it is. Uh, any old... Flavor of the lie will do. There's more than one flavor. But it really does. It, for, at the end of the day, as far as the devil concerns, all he wants is for you to believe that. Rely on you. you know, words not from God or words not from God. You should remember that when we talk about this. And, 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 and know this too. The crow never announces he is coming to steal your seeds. He doesn't tell you that he's coming to steal your seeds. So that's, that's the first thing to take into the text that you look at this weekend. And if you're going to ask, you know, how do I grow when you're writing your notes down? How do I write about not me? How do I write about Christ, about the prophets, about the apostles, about the heroes of the faith, about my friends and neighbors, about all the good that's out there that's not me? How do I sing about that? How do I worship in a way that's not about me? Yeah. So that's, that's the first step to breaking those barriers in the, in the broken mind. Now, he talked them into it, first principles, to rely on whenever you're having conversations about Christ and Christianity. First off, it's just a fact. We have to know this. Christianity is not silent. Jesus is risen, and all Christians must say this. That even if no one's listening, even if everyone else is shouting you down, that's not an excuse. Right? So if, if Christianity right now is silent where you are, whose fault is that? Don't blame somebody else. Right? All Catholic Christians, that means you know anybody who is a Trinitarian, must regularly speak the words, he is risen. That's why we say the creed every week. Hopefully you're doing it at home. You want to talk people into this? You've got to be able to say it out loud and not be afraid of it. 
If you're afraid of saying out loud the most important thing in your entire religion, he is risen, you think people are going to judge you for saying that? Well, then how could you possibly comfort yourself with that? You're afraid to say it to anybody else when, in theory, you would want to say it to them for comfort too, wouldn't you? Now, I'm going to give you a second talk to them in principle this morning. This one, that the only way anyone ever becomes a Christian, we did this with the, uh, you know, the read-through a little bit, is that another Christian talks them into it. And that at the heart of this, this will be the biggest kind of gist of the book by the end. It'll grow a little bit. But what is it? What are you talking them into? What we were just talking about a moment ago. He is risen. That's the first thing. Talk yourself into that. Jesus is alive today. He's in charge of the universe. If you believe that, it changes your world. You're paid for. Ooh. Like you can't fail. You can't die. You, you can't. Well, that's the next one. You can't die. You're paid for. You can't be cast out of Jesus' kingdom by Jesus unless you cast yourself out. So remember that you've been bought. You're, you're a slave now, and this is a good thing. And uh, it becomes the fact that you're immortal now. Now you know you can't die. Everything's taken care of. The point is that the Christian talks himself into this first. Well, frankly, the Christian is first talked into it by another Christian, by a pastor. Every week you go to church to be talked into it. You're watching this show so that I will talk you into it, right? So principle number one, all Christians must say he has risen. And principle number two, all Christians become Christians by that happening. It's pretty simple. And yet, if you look at what passes for mission today, and here's where we go, the text for the sermon. Yes. If you look at what passes for uh, for mission today, you do not see... Hold on, I got distracted by that. Um, you don't see a lot of that. You see a lot of helping people. Not a lot of he has risen going on. And frankly, if we're going to talk about the mission of the church in the world today, we're going to talk about social ministry and helping people in an age where hmm, all buildings matter, but not all lives. Some black lives matter, and apparently some don't if they're conservative. I would say that we cannot be satisfied as Christians just sitting still and saying he has risen. Now, we should say he has risen. We should say you are paid for. We should say you are immortal now. We should say he won't be long anyway. And for that reason, while we wait, we're not going to stop saying what good and evil are. We're not going to stop living according to what these things are. No matter how wild you get around us, we will not be satisfied until the righteousness of Christ, which is both active and passive, flows like concordia, like mighty waters and streams of peace. Now, this is not to say that we should be unmindful of the trials and the tribulations that people face in this life. History is a complex cacophony of men of two-faced power who say, I'll give you this, and they give you that instead. They say, I'll help you, and they hurt you instead. They say, I'm here to serve you, and they put themselves over you instead. We're watching many, many people claim, let me be over you now instead, as a result of what we see going on around us. And that's because we cannot be ignorant of the real trials and tribulations that wicked men in power, without faith, in a higher power, end up doing for themselves. But remember what Jesus says about this. He does not say to rise up and repay and seek reciprocity from the oppressor. He says, bless those who hate you and do good to those who oppress you. That was in the greatest sermon ever preached, I think. There was another man who once said something very similar in perhaps the greatest sermon ever preached on American soil. A certain Martin Luther King Jr. once said that unearned suffering 
is redemptive. And he encouraged those who heard him that day in the swamp to not go home without noting what that means. That the suffering God allows us to find brings us closer into our trust in his redemption of us and brings us with the ability to imitate him by redeeming our brothers who hate us. Not repaying good for evil, but repaying love for hate. He told his listeners that day in the swamp not to go home and wallow in what they were being told to think was the answer, which was violence, but to face the manifold difficulties that they had in the South of America at that time, when Jim Crow was real and not just a a ploy being used by old white men to stay in power just a little longer. Go home and face the manifold difficulties of your life as it is now, not absolved. I tell you, not absolved of the dream that Martin Luther King Jr. preached that day. A dream deeply rooted in America because a Jew named Jesus convinced the founders to believe in the potential of a forgiven, liberated, and enlightened nation of men. Now, this is a dream that Martin Luther King Jr. said, and I, Ben Shapiro says, I'm, I'm more than willing to say, has not yet lived out its true meaning among us, nor do I expect it to until Christ returns. That does not make it any less a worthwhile creed. That we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. This is the dream that fields of charity would reign from sea to shining sea. That it would bind former enemies and former terrors and former prodigal brothers around a new table of kingly and priestly brotherhood. A dream that the burning heat of rioting races, sweltered and swarmed by the infernos of greed and cowardice of men who lie to them, could be transfigured into an oasis of philanthropy and brotherhood and neighborly positive intent. This is the dream I have. That my five children who are still alive will someday live in a nation, a country, among a people where they will not be judged according to the color of their skin, which they currently are, but by the content and conduct of their character. This is a dream that matters to me because the black life martyred in order to preach it still preaches it from beyond the grave to me as his confession of his Lord. This is the dream that the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land allotted to the justified. And yes, I have this dream today. And while I still have this dream, I'm going to keep dreaming it until all flesh sees the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. And that faith in this empowers us to live fearlessly in this valley of shadow until he returns. The persuasive power of the words of life, liberate your breath for a reason. And that is that you might hew out of the mountain of despair in your neighborhood a stone of hope founded in the belief that you can't die because Jesus is alive and inside of you. And that conviction, that confidence will transfigure the white noise, black hate chains of disunity that are shredding our communities under the demonic party of progress against tolerance, against fatherhood, against babies, against peace, against police, against flags, against opinions, against truth, against news, against trust. To that, I say, we should transfigure our neighborhoods and our lives against them. And no matter what they do, 
so that the white noise, black hate, Babylon falling falls into the resurrection of a God-honest Catholic Christianity that does not believe Babel but believes the Bible and thus creates a symphony from across all denominations that is unafraid to stand up steadfast, certain, and in fraternity of brotherhood. On that day in the swamp, Dr. King said, If and when America is to be great, little black boys and little white girls will need to join hands and sing. My country, tis of thee, Sweet land of liberty, land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside let freedom ring. I'll tell you, that'll happen when every suburb and hood, every county and township, every Christian and Catholic, every Jew and Muslim, every Buddhist, black, white, rich or poor, well, believes in Jesus enough to agree that when he says you should love your enemies into being friends... He was right about that. And that it's worth dying trying rather than becoming like them. I have a dream. And I think it's amazing that I have to be the one to say it. Don't you think? Oh. So I wrote a book. Oh, that was a lot. I wrote a book so that we would all say it. Why is it getting a double? Okay, I wrote a book so we could all say it. <laughs> he is risen. You are paid for. Uh, it won't be long now. All that kind of good stuff. I, I highly recommend that you get our friend the troll. What? I, of course, I can't close that by clicking there, Jonathan. I highly recommend that you get our friend the troll uh, copy of the book or another one as soon as you may and and dig into this. We'll be doing it more, of course, over the the whole year. If you like the conviction that I have when I talk. All I can say is it comes from believing the Bible is authentically true. And the more that I just let that be my final assumption in life, the less the doubts, which we talked about with our friend earlier, they're there. I mean, I didn't get into that. I should have earlier. My doubts, when my doubts come, they are so amazingly ungodly. It's, it's unreal. Like the, the epic level of atheism that I've been managed to create as like a cognizant doubt through pondering is rather intense. You know, and this is as a, as a full on, you know, 15 year tenured pastor, right? And it's like, but in those moments, what do you do? It's like, it, Okay, so I just talked myself out of believing God exists. And let me, let me slow down and breathe a second before I uh, go further on that one. Oh, wait, I'm breathing again. It's creations here, the math. Oh, the math! God exists, because the math is really clear on that one. Okay, so God exists, and now I don't have to worry anymore. I can at least go back and just kind of dig my way back into what I know is true, right? Um, so you just have to stop and have enough ability to talk yourself into the faith, right? Uh, and, and that happens through practice. happens through practice with... Christian friends and neighbors and family members, right? It happens through practice with the mirror. It happens through practice by talking to me. Talk to me. I can't hear you. <laughs> no, no. I mean, if, you're, if your like, wife is right there, she might think you're weird, but um, she probably thinks that anyway, right? We all do. Uh, uh, just you. I'm only talking to you and not to all of us. Uh, what? What? Yes. So what I'm saying is, again, uh, please 
consider that this book will be something that will be a benefit to your life. Um, get the free copy. Sign up for the newsletter at MadMondaysRedFist.com slash contact. You can send stuff to us, and we'll try to answer it here. Your comments and questions, Super Chats, if I missed them, will end up in the show next week. Patreon is the way that I really make the world go around financially outside of my day job, and I almost have two when you count this one in. Um, so uh, Patreon, you can find that uh, linked below and, and all this stuff. Really helpful. Five bucks a month or 10 bucks a month or a little more. Um, it can help me go further and begin to expand and add not only you know stuff like cameras and equipment, but ideally at some point we'd like to bring on some help yeah? uh, and get some other stuff going. So uh, with all that said, that's all going to happen through Patreon over the next 10 years. So feel free to sign up and, and join the team there. What else have I not mentioned yet? Oh, the new podcast with Koontz, uh, A Brief History of Power. Um, Got another one recorded this week. Uh, one, one released Thursday, one, one recorded Tuesday for next Thursday, so we continue to stay on that. Um, and the uh, downloads are getting close to, after a couple of weeks, we're almost breaking 1,000. Um, the idea here, again, is this is a, a largely secular but certainly Christian-influenced podcast about history and uh, as a Christian perspective on history, to be sure, uh, and what we can learn from the history of evil men taking power for themselves uh, to apply to our present day. Right, to apply to our present day. So great podcast. If you haven't checked it out, if you've never been exposed to, to Professor Kuntz of Concordia Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, um, he is a shining light uh, of, of common sense and Bible teaching. So uh, check that out. Uh, iTunes or wherever else you look for podcasts, you should be able to look for A Brief History of Power. And I believe, wow, I'm later than I want to be. So we're going to get going. That's going to end us for the day. Y'all, I don't want to end. You know why I don't want to end? Because you give me hope. You give me energy. The fact that there's still... 95 of you sitting here watching me um, makes me think that some of you are going to walk outside and talk about Jesus to somebody today. And I know that's what the church lives for, lives from, and hopes in. So thank God. Thank God for you. Y'all just keep on doing that. Not wallowing in the muck with those who have no hope, but lifting up your heads and all the more as you see that day approaching. Was that worth a dollar? Click the Patreon link in the show notes to sign up. Pretty please? <laughs>